We have a long podcast today. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Bills winning against the Pats and what that means, kind of how to change my mind, but sort of didn't change my mind. We'll touch on that game and McDermott's thoughts, both after the Monday loss and this win. He spoke with Albert Breer. So we have all sorts of NFL stuff from Week 16 with Burt Breer and a look ahead of the quarterback stuff and a little over under properly rated with five quarterbacks in the NFL today and KOC breaking down the Christmas contenders. Golden State, a huge win. And then we'll do some fake trades at the end and life advice, which is probably a C- minus today. It's the Ryan Rosillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever. For the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older. 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. $5 doesn't get you what it used to get you. I asked for change the other day. The guy gave me back four. Introducing Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps. In your choice of ranch, barbecue, honey mustard, and a bonus flavor called Incredible Value. Ever heard of it? You can't taste it, but boy, is it sweet. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. I want to start this week with what I just thought was a monstrous win, and that's Bills going into New England and, and beating the Pats. All right, and that's, that's pretty obvious. But I want to tell you a story about how 10 years ago or so, the same thing kind of happened. Leading up to the first matchup with New England going up to Buffalo, before we kind of knew that the weather condition was armageddon um although what was that other movie with dennis quaid and everything was frozen uh day after tomorrow shout out to my guy joan hall that's right it is the day the day after tomorrow um good not great uh don't really remember to be honest with you but i'm I'm pro joan hall anything so i'll say good no problem things worked out that didn't happen i always feel like the end of the world people you just like you know i get picks wrong but draft picks Sometimes be like, you guys are just oh forever on that. All right, we brought that up before. So back to how I felt about Buffalo and New England. You know, New England with that win streak and now with two straight losses, I was like, okay, this is this is a really good team. It's 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 a really good team. We got a really good defense. Um, you know the coaching staff can find different ways to be multiple, right, in your approach to football. And Mac looked like he was a guy that was steady enough in comparison to some of these other young quarterbacks and even older quarterbacks that are a mess all the time and that Mac wasn't going to screw it up for you. But I still felt like they were somewhat opportunistic with the teams they were beating because if you kind of look through the win streak, now win streak like what New England had in the NFL is just hard to do in general as we watch these ridiculous results every single week that we don't expect to happen. Houston over the Chargers, anyone? Um, so any kind of win streak like New England had is ridiculous. You know, it just it doesn't happen that often, right? But I, I just felt like Buffalo was better. And I understand their flaws, and we can get to those. Um, but I just felt like Buffalo was better. And then New England goes in there, runs the football down their throats the entire time. You know, they gave them seven on a botched special teams play as well. And Buffalo still had a chance in that game. But I left it going, all right, I went in thinking Buffalo would win. And now New England has them. And that was kind of the conversation leading up to the rematch in New England. 
And that even though I felt a certain way about Buffalo, I go, maybe New England just is in their heads. You know, maybe it was like, hey, this thing was supposed to be done. This run is over. Josh Allen's going to be the QB for the next two years. It's a good team. Although at times, I think I've overrated Buffalo. Uh, my expectations for them are higher throughout the season. So maybe I'm more critical in parts where that Colts loss, you're like, what is wrong with these guys? Um, but they figured it out and they get this big win. And the whole point of this is that a lot of times, I think, we can make mistakes when we see a result and then we let other stuff start to kind of like influence our thoughts on who these teams were. And the best example I can ever use is LSU-Alabama. When LSU beat Alabama and Tuscaloosa, I was there for it. It was a 9-6 game. It is one of the greatest games I've ever attended live um, just because the anxiety level at that game. It was weird. It was night. It was cold in Alabama. And... You know, I remember just a bunch of us were there, lucky enough to be on the sideline watching that game. I remember Kenny Stabler was in attendance, probably just got out of a Grand National. It looked like he owned seven dojos in the greater Birmingham area. Um, Tom Rinaldi coming up next to me. He's like, man, Stabler, the snake. Rosillo, you and the snake? Forget it. He just kept saying it over and over again. It was very weird, um, but I'll never forget it. Just Rinaldi every every hour be like, hey, see Stabler, I can't imagine you and you and the snake out on the town. And I'd be like, look, all right, we got it. Anyway, love Rinaldi, but it was an overtime win for LSU, and it was just one of those deals where I go, do not forget how you feel right now about these two teams, because if they play again in the national championship, which is exactly what happened, don't let LSU figuring out a way, because LSU and Les Miles, especially you know before the end, LSU would just find ways to win these weird games. would be like, they did it again. I'm like, but Bama's the better football team. Bama is the better football team. Do not allow this result to influence your opinion on these two teams when they face each other again. And then guess what happens? Lucky enough to be part of the national title game coverage. We're in New Orleans. I'm just feeling the vibes left and right. And I go, you know what? Ellis is going to figure out a way. And they didn't cross the 50 forever. The Bama smoked them. It wasn't even close. And I go, you know, I let it get in my head. We were out later that night, name dropping. And Chris Fowler had one of the greatest lines ever. Or he's like, what'd you think? And I go, you know, I thought LSU was just going to figure out a way because they have all the time, even though I thought Alabama was better. And then Fowler just looks at me and goes, the voodoo get to you? The voodoo, the, the whole thing down here, the voodoo. You know, you, you land thinking Bama, you're here a couple days, you're walking around, you're taking it all in, the voodoo starts to seep in, you pick LSU. I was like, yeah, I guess I think that's exactly what happened. He goes, yeah, me too. Um, I think that's what he said. I think he had also felt the same way, even though when you watched the first game that LSU won in Tuscaloosa, it felt like Alabama was the better football team. I don't know what to make of the ridiculous weather game. Sean McDermott's comments that we're going to get to with Burt Breer, who uh, talked to him after both games, had a great piece on Monday Morning Quarterback this morning. So to see Buffalo pull this one out after I was like, you know, I think Buffalo is better, but then what happens in that that night game, and maybe maybe they're just, maybe New England just has their number. Maybe they're just in their head. Maybe this is just a continuation of the 20 years that we saw, and just the names are a little bit different. And it's not the case. It's a week 16 result but I feel like after watching it again, you're like, Josh Allen's just better than everybody else. I mean, think about that drive. You know, the game is still in the balance. It felt like Buffalo was the better team throughout. It's a 75-yard touchdown drive. Uh, Buffalo's only up one score at that point. The third down throws to McKenzie. The fourth and one where Allen beat three different guys. Um, the Dawson Knox flipped touchdown at the goal line. And... I leave this going, all right, look, I still respect the hell out of New England. You have to because of who they've been and what they've looked like this year. But my biggest point, especially with guys back home being like, New England's winning the Super Bowl again, dude. 
Like, I don't know. I mean, this is really impressive. It's amazing they've turned it around this quickly, considering what they felt like last year. Some opt-outs, but yeah, the quarterback situation wasn't ideal. You're just not going to win many games in the NFL when you feel like your quarterback's holding you back. And Mac Jones, like I said, throughout this, um, you feel like he's the mistake-free guy. You know, I watched that Trevor Lawrence game yesterday against the Jets, and yeah, he's a rookie, but that spike on third down to stop the clock when they could have just run a play and still had time to run another play after that. I mean, what... What is going on? I mean, some of the stuff that I see throughout the week, guys going for a first down when they need the clock to be stopped. The Arizona game had all sorts of mistakes. Yes, they looked bad. We'll get to that with Beer. Um, you know, guys are running out of bounds with the control in their hand at seven years old, and some of these guys can't figure this out. And so I don't think Mac Jones, I think the, the best part of him is that he doesn't do a lot of that stuff. But my biggest concern was I think New England would have to win a shootout at some point. And I don't really think that they're built to do that. And now we've seen back-to-back New England games. And the Colts game, they were a mess. They still were in it despite being down 20 nothing. So it wasn't like they got stomped. But you're asking Mac to do something that it doesn't feel like this offensive staff feels comfortable in him doing is just winning a game, throwing the football all over the place. And the New England defense, who'd been one of the best all season long, got trucked by Buffalo. So I guess the lesson in all of this, and it's it's just tough. Like when we're all on the couch trying to figure out the mental state of all these football teams, I mean, even those of us that do it for a living, you know, we're no different than you guys that are watching it on the couch unless you have contacts all over the league. But the lesson in this really is that sometimes you're just going to stick to your guns because when you start letting outside like the mental part of it, that there's really no chance that you have a great grasp or understanding of the mental toughness of of the guys inside of the locker room. And despite the ups and downs that Buffalo's had all season long, like I thought this was a monumental win. Because now you can't really say, well, New England's in their head. Maybe if they play in the playoffs again, the Pats pull it off. I mean, it's certainly not impossible. But that mental block that I, I basically just started to create and buy into um, completely altered my understanding of these two football teams. And that's why I just can't say enough about that win. I know the O-line for Buffalo isn't great. If you take Josh Allen 600 rushing yards out, you know you don't love them running the football. Um, but they actually have really good rushing totals because in yards per carry because of Josh Allen. I mean, the guy had 380 yards of offense against one of the top three or four defenses in the entire league at their place. So huge win, not only in the standings for Buffalo, but to kind of erase some of that doubt that some of us may have had about this specific matchup. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock your dude's windshield on the highway and at first you're like what is that i'm like oh it's just a little mark nope now by the end of the ride it's a big crack and it's been a while so i check out the state farm app i go hey this is what happened and the funny thing is is i was like do i want to go app first or do i call old school guy probably should call i was like let's check out the app not only did it take a minute to get done they set up the glass replacement they told me the estimate ahead of time said you want to go ahead with it And I was like, now I understand it's all in front of me, all done. I didn't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. Albert Breer, the Monday morning quarterback, uh, must read every Monday morning. All right, so there's a million things I want to get to. My open was pretty simple on that. Whatever 
doubt I had about the Bills, especially in regards to the Patriots. Like I just I feel better about the Bills because I felt better about the Bills before the first matchup, and then it just went sideways. And the McDermott quote: "You talk to Sean McDermott, give me a sense of who the Bills are in comparison to the Pats, and then kind of what we learned, or maybe this, yeah. you know." I don't know. I feel like this is the right result. Uh, I know Pats right. fans aren't going to like that, but I, you know, I think Josh Allen kind of proved that in his superhero shit yesterday. Yeah, I actually think like from both sides, it's fine. You know what I mean? Like, I actually think like it was always going to be sort of a two-year rebuild, and the goal for the Patriots was always going to be to be rolling when you're going into the second year of Mac Jones's rookie contract, which is when the Rams hit it with Jared Goff. It's when the Chiefs hit it with Patrick Mahomes. Like that's the goal is to be able to maximize you know the rookie contract for the quarterback, and so like. I think the expectations with them got a little out of control there. Um, yeah. And I think part of another thing that got out of control was this tendency we all have after nights like that Monday night in Buffalo to act as if Bill Belichick broke someone. And I think that there was some frustration on the Buffalo end with that idea in that, like, wait, we've been building this for five years now. Like we were making the playoffs when Tom Brady was still in the division. You know what I mean? Like, so like this idea that like the whole thing was coming undone, which like they've been in the playoffs for, they're going to, after they make it this year, be four or five years in the playoffs. I think that was sort of like a frustrating thing for them. So yeah, I think, you know, like you said, the, the super, the, the superhero stuff from Josh Allen yesterday and you know, I, I think we knew we were capable of it. I think what what we found yesterday, and I and this is something I talked to Sean about um, a bunch when we talked after the game, was sort of like him striking the balance between making the right play and then knowing when to put the cape on. You know what I mean? Like so, like early in that last drive, the back breaking drive in the fourth quarter, makes the routine play a couple times. Isaiah McKenzie moves the chains. Well, then what does he do later in the drive? On fourth and one, puts the cape on. On third and ten puts the cape on, right? So, like, I think, like, Josh Allen's, like, like he's always had the ability to be a top-five quarterback. I think so much of it for him has been, like, trying to find a way to strike the balance between just playing the position and doing what the play tells you to do and then knowing when to put the cape on. And I thought the fourth quarter yesterday was a great example of him figuring it out. And it's a great sign for where the Bills are going because I think dealing with expectations this year was a different deal for them and where they had been their first four years that Sean had been there the first three years that Josh had been there, where it was sort of like you're ascending, you're ascending, you're ascending. Now they're kind of up there and other teams are trying to knock them off. And I think like the last month has kind of taught them how to deal with all of that a little bit. You talked to Sean McDermott after this game, and a lot of it's been the clarification of the comments after the Monday night game yeah. where he basically say, hey, let's not give Bill Belichick more credit than we need to. And of course, you know, we're so... um used to never getting anything good from anybody and then it's like oh you lost it's bitter and then i kind of understood his point though like in a way it's like hey yeah. we lost this game but you know this isn't they didn't they didn't invent the forward pass tonight <laughs> yeah. uh what did you get from that because again you talked to him because he talked mm -hmm. about it both then and then with you just in the last 24 hours yeah so i think it's like his big thing was really um, you know, he understood why people took it the way he did and i honestly didn't think it was a great moment for him because i i think and he didn't see this at the time, but I think his biggest problem is going to be with his locker room after something like that. Because if you're not saying it's Bill, if you're saying it's not Bill, then really, what are you implicitly saying? You're saying it's not me, right? Like you're saying it's it's not, if it's not the other coach, you're saying it's not you either. And how does that project on your locker room? It's like when a coach says it's execution, not play calling, right? Like where the locker room might take that the wrong way. So 
I, I thought that was a tough moment for him, but I understand now what he was doing too, which is he was trying to project to his team, look, like this isn't the big bad Patriots coming in here and taking our lunch money. This is like more so like there were a few key, key places in that game where we were set up to succeed, where we failed. And let's put this on us and let, let's just call this what it is and say, if we had played better, we would have won the game. I, I think you know, the message he was trying to convey to his team and probably failed in the moment to, to, to convey was that like this was really all under their control and they were good enough to win that game in the moment. And it was, they had to take ownership of that. And I think over the last three weeks, they did. You know, I think coming back the way they did in Tampa in the second half of that game, even though they didn't wind up winning, I think they really sort of found something, take care of business against Carolina. And then, you know, I think you saw them make a lot of the plays late in the fourth quarter that they weren't making in that on that Monday night a few weeks ago. Colts win uh, mm-hmm. against Arizona. I want to get to the Arizona part of this second. Um, but the fact that they went in with missing, what, three offensive linemen, and then yep. Fisher goes down on top of that, Darius Leonard. Uh, who are the Colts right now? Because they're they're putting this together uh, with with nice wins against New England and Arizona here back to back weeks. You know what's hard, Brian? Like, can you imagine if Andrew Luck was the quarterback right now? Like, what that team would be like? And it just sort of feels like that's hung over them for the last few years. And I think that's why a lot of people have missed like what a good team they built. Like, you look at like the offensive line was a mess um, three four years ago. It might be the best group in the league. Um, they have skill position talent and guys like Pittman and Taylor and Jack Doyle and, um, you know, and Mo Alley Cox, you know, T.Y. Hilton. And then on defense, they've got studs, you know, like I think Quiddy Pay is going to be a really good player up front. They've got DeForest Buckner up there. Um, Leonard and Okariki are really good backers. Uh, Kenny Moore. I mean, Julian Blackman was going to be one of the best safeties in the league. He got hurt. So he's been out for the year. But they've just really drafted well and put that team together well. And I think it's one of the more complete groups in the league. Now, I think the question is going to be like, what version of Carson Wentz do you get when you get to January and February? Because I think anybody who watched that game could see it. Like he started off okay. Then he really hit a rut in the middle of the game and didn't look very good. And he was able to sort of bring it together at the end and play really well at the end of the game um, and, and, and going on that drive to put the game away. Um, you know, the question I think is going to be like, can they consistently get that sort of performance out of him? Because I think so much of the rest of the team is right, you know, and like I, you assume eventually, like you're going to get Quentin Nelson back, you're going to get Ryan Kelly back, you're going to get the pieces that you were missing on Saturday back. I think Saturday they showed a lot of resilience and dealing with the absences, but it's a talented, well-rounded, deep team that I think is going to kind of ebb and flow between, you know, are, are they a wild card team? Are they a conference championship team? That's going to be based on how their quarterback plays. On the Arizona side, I'm now um, in the Kingsbury camp, so I'm 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 a Cliff guy. Uh, so <laughs> because I just felt like the reaction to him being hired, it wasn't about who he was; it's just people were pissed he got that head coaching job. Oh yeah, the, no, that's definitely the, true. He got the head coaching job because he develops quarterbacks, and they wanted him to develop a quarterback, and they've developed Kyler. Maybe it's it's Kyler's immense talent. But yeah. here's what I don't understand is why was last year the fall off in the second half because of Kyler's shoulder, but this year the fall off in the second half isn't Kyler's ankle it, or Hopkins being out. It's that Kingsbury sucks as a coach. I think what this is is people that had a lot of 
a lot of stock into Kingsbury's terrible. He shouldn't have this job. Oh, they yeah. Had wait, they had to wait three months, and now they're ready to go. I, look, that game on Saturday was a mess. Special teams sucked. They were stupid. Mm-hmm. They made a bunch of dumb penalties. I think it's a really hard thing when you're down those two scores and you're trying to figure out, do I go for the field goal now and have more time to go for a yep. touchdown, or do I try yeah. to go for a touchdown? You know, even Bill... In and then, like, goal- at the end of that game, it's like a shot in the dark situation anyway, right? Like, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, it's just like, I mean, like, what are you going to do? You, you need to get an onside kick either way. You know what I loved about Belichick two weeks ago in that Colts game was when they were like, why are you kicking it or what are you do?" And he goes like, you know what? I just didn't really love, I think it was a fourth and eight or something. And he goes, I didn't really love our chances on fourth and eight. You know, I know what the score was. I get it. <laughs> you know, but I love Belichick's answer just being so simple because when he gives you that answer, there's no dispute to it. It's like, hey, I didn't like us on fourth and eight. Are you all right yeah. with that? Yeah, I mean, this part of it to me, like, you know what it kills me? And like, I don't want it to come off as like anti-analytics guy, right? Like, but like, people look at like the numbers and like this happens when you do this and this happens when you do that. And they don't consider like these guys that are like, like these guys are taking into account like the human beings they have on their team. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like Bill did that. The reason Bill did that against the Colts was because he has a rookie quarterback and had a top five defense. And you know what failed him was that top five defense gave up a 67 yard touchdown run to Jonathan Taylor. If they get to stop there, the, they get the ball back with a chance to win the game. Right. So Bill was betting on his defense in that situation to get one stop and the defense couldn't do it. And like it's John Harbaugh, like in the situation on the fourth down, right? Like it's all right. Like, well, am I going to bet on stopping Aaron Rodgers once or twice? Because there's 42 seconds left on the clock. If I, if with Tyler Huntley, a quarterback with backup tackles, backup corners, backup, backup everything, you know what I mean? Like, am I going to be able to beat Aaron Rodgers twice or do I want to go for it for two here? where I'm only going to have to beat Aaron Rodgers once. So much of these decisions comes down to what these guys actually have on hand. You know what I mean? Like, and I think so often these arguments lack that sort of nuance. You know what I mean? Like so uh, much well, of it's look, like what you've got. Uh, you know, I've already, and then whenever you do this, it's like, well, you guys hate the numbers. It's like, no, I mean, they should have been going for fourth down. The fourth and right. inches numbers are overwhelming, almost yeah. no matter who you have. Um, you know, having it deep in the opponent's territory and going for it on fourth down and being rewarded with great field position. I'm I'm for all these things. I think yeah. a lot of the things are funny because we've looked at the league being like, you know, you guys are doing actually a lot of the shit wrong. But when it's fourth and goal, and I'm giving you the context here, it's 20 to 7 in the fourth quarter, New England at the Colts a couple weeks ago, and it's fourth and seven. Or excuse me, it's fourth and goal, but it's from the sevens, same thing. Yeah. And they kick the field goal and they make it twenty ten. I, I don't think there's any emphasis ever put on it. I think this is the two point conversion stuff that'll happen at times. The chart will say this, but then you go, you know, if this doesn't work out on the back end, you've now exposed yourself to maybe lose by a field goal instead of having them tie for a field goal. And in this case, to make it twenty ten, even though you're going, no, 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 you need you need the two touchdowns to just throw it in the end zone. It still almost worked, and you would have needed a field goal later anyway. So, you know, right. you're looking at it going, okay, well, wait a minute, we got the touchdown. Now we're only two down three. Like, I don't know if there's enough projecting out of, like there's one two-point conversion scenario where every time it happens, I go, okay, but this is the one where it actually bites you in the ass when you think you're getting the extra point. Because <laughs> right. if you don't get this, now you're exposing yourself to a loss as opposed to a tie. Um, but again, we don't have to do any more on we that. We talk about Cliff. Yeah, back <laughs> to Cliff. To go, go ahead. What do what the NFL people talk about Cliffs? Like, what do they say? Yeah, I, like I actually think like you know Cliff has earned a lot of respect over the last three years, and I, I'm with you in that. Like, and look, like Urban dug his own grave, but but I think it's sort of similar in that way that there were a lot of people invested in the demise of Urban Meyer. You know what I mean? Like, and again, like Urban did so many things wrong and deserved his fate. 
But like, I think it made it worse for him at the end because there were people that were invested in seeing him go down. And I think this happens with college coaches in general. I think people were invested in Chip Kelly failing. You know, I think people are invested in Matt Rule failing. Um, and I and I and I think that that exists without question with Cliff. Like that, there were people that you know had a certain opinion of Cliff and haven't moved off of it. And um, look, like Cliff put together a really good, a really good coaching staff, right? And his program was strong enough where when you took him out of the equation, they won a game in Cleveland right? Like a crucial game in Cleveland. They won without their quarterback this year. I I think like what you're seeing and what you've seen over the last couple of weeks might have a little bit more to do with the age of the team. And like, you know, I I remember talking to Cliff about this in the summer where um, he, like one of his big things coming out last year was we weren't, we aren't mature enough. We don't know, like, we don't know how to win in the critical situation. So they went and they brought in AJ, AJ Green and JJ Watt and Rodney Hudson and James Conner and all of these pros, right? And that's great. And I think it's a big reason why they were off to the 10 and 2 start that they were off to. But I think sometimes older teams, you see it at the end of the season. I think you're seeing it with the Patriots defense to some degree now, where when you're relying on guys who are, you have guys in key spots who are 29, 30, 31. Do they still have the juice in December and January? And so for Arizona, like you, you look at some of their key players again, like AJ Green, Rodney Hudson. I know JJ's not up there, out there, but that's part of the equation. He's hurt. You know, he's older. He's hurt. Chandler Jones is older. So, um, you know, I think that that's part of it with Cliff, where you look at the makeup of the roster and sort of what got them there might be stinging them a little bit. But I mean, they're like, look at Cliff, like he's some buffoon now because they hit a little bit of a, a rut, you know, in December. I mean, this guy has effectively turned around what was the worst roster in football three years ago, right? Developed a quarterback, and they're in a much better place. I mean, you can, we can ask big picture questions about Cliff in a different context, but to talk about him like some people were talking about him three years ago, I think is asinine. Uh, by the way, there's zero debate on the college guys coming in and the NFL community trashing all of them. But yeah. There's, there's... I mean, like I mean, people talk about Chip now like he was an abject failure. He won 10 games two years in a row. Like, like he wasn't a, I, he wasn't terrible. Like, no, I'm not saying he's like, I'm not saying he's Vince Lombardi, but like 10 and six, 10 and six. And then the wheels came off when he got too much power. Yeah. You know, I think Brandon Staley is smart in that he knows, and you, you knew this, um, yeah. anyone that covers the league, like they were starting to go, Hey, check out this Brandon Staley guy. Some of the mm-hmm. shit this guy's doing. All right. And that was kind of building. And then all of a sudden he gets the gig and it's funny that like the chargers, we know the roster, especially with the injury. Like they just seem to lose their top guys all the time defensively. Um, yeah, it's weird. And, and they're a 500 team right now. Okay, and mm-hmm. and the world loves Brandon Staley because he owns pressers. And <laughs> I would say that stay, I'm, there's nothing anti-Staley, but like mm-hmm. just being involved with social media the way we have to. If I ever had a, a leadership role, I would know exactly what to say to get everybody on social media to love me. Like mm-hmm. I would just go up there, say this soundbite for 30 seconds to a minute. And I'm not even saying that he's doing it and that he's fake or any of this kind of stuff. But but then people fall in love with that. And then you look at them and you're like, you just lost the Texans. Again, it's, right. it's a week 16 snapshot through all this. You have, though, a very interesting point from your column that I everybody would have told you you were wrong the first half of the season. But Burl throws for 525. He had 299 in the first half against the Ravens. And mm-hmm. This isn't even an anti-Ravens thing. It's not even fair to be critical of the Ravens at this point because it just it finally caught yeah. up to him. Um, so there's nothing anti-Baltimore here at all. But Burrow tears him apart. You would take Burrow over Justin Herbert. That would have been an impossible statement, I'd say, about week four or five. 
I would. Um, and that's nothing against Justin Herbert. But I feel like at this point, if you watch the highlights, you take Herbert. If you watch the game, I think you take Burrow, if that makes sense. And I, I think, you know, what Joe Burrow has done in lifting that team up, how he's masked their offensive line issue, how he's been able to win with receivers that are just that, that, that are younger than him. Like T. Higgins is younger than him. Jamar Chase is younger than him. Joe Mixon, I believe, is right around the same age as him. Like, like, like to do this at that young an age and to sort of change that. And I've talked to him a few times about this over the course of the last couple of months. And it's interesting the way he talks about it. He basically like has said more or less to me a few times, the old Bengals are dead. That doesn't exist anymore, right? And if you think about it, it's sort of like what he did at LSU, right? Like when he went to LSU, what was LSU? Defense first. They can't get out of their way offensively. Even when they're really good, they just run the ball. And like he got there, he had one pretty good year. Year two, it's a rocket ship and they're breaking every record, right? He like changed what LSU was. And I know they had great players other than him. I, Justin Jefferson, Jamar Chase, Clyde Edwards-Alaire, uh, awesome, awesome offense. But like he was like, if you talk to people who are who scout the who scout that region, they'll tell you and been in that building, say like that guy was the culture changer. And I think you're seeing it again in Cincinnati and just the way he manages the game, the way he kind of has an awareness of situations, um, the way he plays when it matters most. I hate to I hate to make this comparison because this is the one that kills. I mean, there are so many guys that have gotten this one where it's just not accurate and not fair. There's some things about him that remind me of Brady. I mean, just the way he carries himself, the chip he has on his shoulder. Um, the story is obviously a little. Story is obviously a little different. It's a six-round pick versus a first overall pick. But you know, I just think some of the traits that you see in Burrow um, really sort of remind me of Brady, and kind of the way that he has an ability to kind of affect people around him reminds me of Brady. And so, I love Justin Herbert. I think eventually he's going to get there. He's still, he's still got in. There's still some inconsistencies in his game. Like, I think if you actually watch the games, you can see that. Um, to me, I like look at Burrow and it's almost like, it's almost like the, the Tom Brady, Peyton Manning argument, you know, 17, 18 years ago, where you really had to look to see it with Brady. But once you got it, it was like, yeah, like this guy's going to win a lot, you know? And so I just, I don't know. I mean, like, like watching Joe Burrow, I'm not sure there's a quarterback 25 and under that I would take over him. And maybe Trevor Lawrence because of the contract, you know, um, maybe, you know, I, I like, I, 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 like other than Trevor Lawrence, I don't know if there's one that I would even like think that much about, you know, um, I think Burrow, like, because he's kind of hidden in Cincinnati, a lot of people aren't paying attention to what's happening there. Leads to a bigger question, though, as I know as a Buckeyes guy. Why is Ohio State so bad at understanding its own talent on its roster between Burrow and Jameson Williams? <laughs> your your Jameson Williams tweet, because I was like, oh, here we go. We're getting... And it was very on point. It was like, hey, this guy transferred out. He was the fourth receiver behind Olave yeah. Wilson and then Jigba Smith. And so you're just going, um... oh, wait, it's Smith and Jigba. Sorry. Uh, yeah. But. You didn't make the point. Buckeyes fans made the point, which I then later stored away for annoyance, was that, you know, he would still be the fourth guy. Like, whatever he would be, and as great as those other three guys, yeah. he wouldn't be the fourth guy on Ohio State's team, okay? He wouldn't be the fourth receiver watching other three guys run around at this yeah. point. Um, and I'm, I'm just kidding, because, look, they had fields coming in, and they have those three guys, yeah. and they all might be first-round picks for the Buckeyes anyway. Uh, 
We, your your Lawrence love, and it'd be it'd be unfair. And you know, I gave him a hard time because I can't believe they spiked the football. I can't believe somebody wasn't in his helmet saying, "Hey, we can run a play. We don't need to spike it. We have time for yeah. two plays." Because considering third is not going to be uh, an end around here, right? Yeah. Um, give me, give me what people are saying about what they've seen from him because the stats are terrible. It's mm-hmm. been a super challenging year for any quarterback, veteran. Forget the number one overall yeah. pick. I I'm not even close to writing him off, but it hasn't been good. It's been, it's been bad. What what are people yeah, saying? Yeah. So I, I here's the this was like a this was sort of a an anecdote I can give you from a couple of weeks ago. Um, this was right after Urban got fired, and um, I was talking to a head coach, and you know he he was talking about like you know jobs that are going to be open and everything else. And he said, Jacksonville, he's like, that's still the best opening. And it's like, they don't have the quite the resources that they did last year, right? Like last year, they had a ton of draft picks. This year, they just basically have their slotted picks. Um, they had a ton of cap space last year. They still have a lot this year, but it's not quite as much as they had last year. So like you kind of like look through the resources and it's not quite what it was last year. But this coach said to me, is like, it doesn't matter because you have Trevor Lawrence. And he said to me, I'm almost more impressed with him now than I was when he was coming out. And that sounds crazy because he hasn't played very well, right? Like you look at the numbers, you look at moments like the, like what you, what you mentioned against the jets there, Ryan. And, um, you know, like there's, there are reasons why people might not think the same of Trevor Lawrence as they did, you know, 11 months ago. Here's the comparison he made to me. This head coach said to me, he reminds me of Troy Aikman in 1989. How Troy Aikman, like when you saw Troy Aikman with the Cowboys back then, how he handled everything, how he was able to kind of process all of it and how he still kind of was very much like that could still look like, like a lot of guys get beaten down in those situations, right? Like still projected himself, like Troy could still project himself as the face of the franchise. Like Troy, there were personality traits with Troy. I like, and look, I was nine years old then, so I don't remember this, but like talking to people who, who do remember is like, you could tell like Troy, like there was reason to believe he was going to make it as poorly as he played that year, as poorly as the Cowboys played. And there's Troy Aikman traits in the way that Trevor Lawrence is handling everything with Jacksonville. And you look at the way he handled like, you know, the last couple of weeks of urban and how he was able to stand up there and take the heat. Um, you know, I, I think he's going to be fine. I think it's going to be a matter of getting him the right coach. And I think it's going to be a matter of, you know, and, and I don't know that we can trust Shad Khan with this stuff at this point, but getting the right coach, getting the right GM, using the resources the right way. I just think, you know, a guy who has had so much experience and at 16 years old, you know, had camera crews following, around, following him around, was a quarterback of a national champion at 18 years old. He's so prepared for all of this. And he's so talented. I have to think that eventually he's going to figure it out. And when he figures it out, like his physical ability is so superior. It's hard for me to believe he won't wind up being one of the five or 10 best quarterbacks in the league. All right. That is still a strong endorsement. Uh, you also were big on Davis Mills uh, on the other side of that win for yeah. the Texans against the Chargers. Um, t- talk to me a little bit because you talk with him. So is this somebody who actually could be the guy behind center here for the Texans? Not that the Watson thing, like I was looking at some Watson numbers this morning because I was going through Kansas City's offense. Like the yards per play for Houston just last year, I think they were number one in the NFL. And you're like, yeah. God, like Deshaun, <laughs> yeah. like what he's doing, carrying that franchise offensively. 
I, uh, you know, so anyway, back to Davis Mills. Um, you, yeah. you want to jump in, so just kind of take. Well, it I'm, not, I'm, not say, I'm not saying he's. I'm not saying like Davis. Davis Mills is going to be Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson. When I don't think you were back, saying that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when Deshaun Watson comes back, whether it's in a Dolphins uniform or Panthers uniform, if the legal stuff is cleared up, like he's going to. I think he's right back there. Like he's going to be the. I think he's going to be the guy he was before. Um, you know, like I think what Davis Mills is right now is like, and you follow this stuff, so I know you know, like was an elite recruit coming out of high school, got hurt a bunch at Stanford. And, you know, Nick Casario was basically betting on the come. And like, he's more physically gifted than some of the guys who were drafted ahead of him um, in April. It's just a matter of like, has he played? He hadn't played very much. And, um, you know, so when I, when I talked to him last night, it was like, I asked him about like, do you view yourself as a first round pick? Do you think you would have been a first round pick? And he's like, yeah, I'm as good as any of those guys. You know, like I just, I just had some bad luck along the way. And so like, I think, you know, with him, it's, you know, like there's obviously a lot more unknown, but he's played a bunch. He, he looked competent early in the year, comes out of the lineup, goes back in, looks better um, coming back in. So there are a lot of good signs there. And I sort of look at it similar to how I look at Jalen Hurts in Philly right now. <clears throat> and I know they're much different players, but here's what I mean by that. Those two guys, Davis Mills in Houston and Jalen Hurts in Philly, at least give those franchises the flexibility where they don't have to go do something stupid in the offseason, right? Like where you can just say to yourself, like if you're if you're Philly, if you're Houston, and you know what? Like the, the trade market is out of control for quarterbacks and you don't want to spend that much, you don't have to. If you don't want to like, if you feel like Kenny Pickett or Matt Corral is a reach in the first round, you don't have to reach for him. That's what I think Davis Mills and Jalen Hurts are for those two teams, like where there could be some high-end potential there, and maybe they are your answer for the next 10 years. I wouldn't bet on that, but maybe they are. But at the very least, they give you some flexibility where you know when you're building, when you're putting your team together and you're Houston, maybe you can use that top pick on Aiden Hutchinson or Kayvon Thibodeau and not blink and not worry about you know having to fill the quarterback now. Maybe if you're Philly, you can take those three first-round picks and get a lot younger on the lines of scrimmage, which you need to do, and not worry so much about quarterback. I think at the very least, you've got like nice stop gaps there where you don't have to force it at the quarterback position. Um, you know, in an offseason where I think the quarterback market is going to be pretty bonkers. Okay, let's uh, do one thing, and then we'll just do an overrated, properly yep. rated um, thing with quarterbacks. Uh, I've been saying this throughout. You're already hearing, I think Rappaport even had the first hint at it, where as much as we think this is a bad quarterback class, give it time, get the guys in, have people watching them, have them be the only options, and you're still going to end up with somebody going high. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think it'll just start pushing up. Um, do you get a sense, like you you touched on it a little bit because you always do these awesome draft things at the end of the Monday morning quarterback deal. Do you get a sense of the jockeying here still at the end of 2021 on kind of like, do you hear a team say Matt Corral's easily the guy? Do you hear a team say Matt Corral's a total joke? Like how how wide is the variance on some of the early returns on teams that have now started to dig in a little bit more? Sure. So like Kenny Pickett, I think is probably the I think Mac Jones helped Kenny Pickett. Um, like in that, like I don't think Kenny Pickett's gonna wow you physically, but I think Mac Jones's success at least opens the door where you say, okay, maybe we don't need somebody to look like Josh Allen or Justin Herbert or Patrick Mahomes to make it work. Um, so like Kenny Pickett's like, I think most teams would view him as like a middle of the first round pick. Um, and I haven't made all my phone calls yet. So I'm sure not everybody feels this way, but 
Um, you know, I, I think somewhere like he's probably the one that's probably got the most solid, like the least volatile stock. Matt Corral, you talk to some teams and they think he's a backup. You talk to other teams and they think he's Zach Wilson. So like, I think that there's going to be more variance with Matt Corral. Um, Sam Howell is an interesting one because he didn't play very well this year. He had a much better sophomore year than he did a junior year. Um, again, he's one of these te- he's one of these guys that you know might get overdrafted. Some teams are going to view him as a backup, and so like I think this sort of to me like this sort of sets up like 2013, and like I remember that year where everybody was sort of like, well, you know, like somebody's going to need them in the first round. And what ended up happening? EJ Manuel was a reach, right? In the first round, Geno Smith went in the second round, Matt Barkley, who people had been talking about, like he's going to be top 10 pick wound up going in the fourth round. Like this feels to me a little bit like that year where you don't like you, you just, you, you look at the group and it's like, if there are options like Rogers, like Watson, like Wilson out there, and you see teams like the Niners and the Rams flipping out quarterbacks that they saw as too average and Goff and, and Garoppolo to go get Stafford and, um, and Lance. In that world, are you still going to see teams like, like four or five teams reaching for quarterbacks in the first round that don't check every box? Maybe it happens. History tells us that it, it probably will at least happen to some degree. But it's just, a, I think it's a tougher sell for teams this year where I think, you know, Kenny Pickett's the one that's, I think there's at least a little bit of a consensus on him and he's not seen as elite by anybody. And then the stock on the other guys is really, really volatile. Malik Willis is another one that's, I think, you know, going to be an interesting one just because he's seen as so raw. And when he had to level up and play against the better competition, he didn't play very well. Um, so like, again, like I think that, you know, those those guys are going to kind of be in this mix. There's like about a half dozen quarterbacks that are going to be in this mix. And I'm not convinced that it's going to shake out where we're going to see like four or five of them in the first round like we normally would. Okay, as we transition to the guys right now, because Saruti put together this list with me because we were just sitting there going, and it's the same thing. Like, and Saruti and I have talked about this, is if you look at the group of like 15 to 20 quarterbacks in the middle, so not the terrible guys and not the five elite guys or whatever that number is, then if you don't like or love any of those guys, you're going to be right at some point. Like some Mondays you're going to be wrong. Some Mondays you're going to be right and you're going to feel good about it. So let's put together a list here because now people are down on Stafford again. Um, Is Stafford over, under, or properly rated? I think we're getting to the point where he's properly rated. (laughs) That sounds funny, right? Like, But like, I, I think like maybe we, he was underrated in Detroit. I think like over the last nine months, maybe he was overrated in LA. Like I think we all talked about him like he was a top five guy. I think he's probably in like the six to 10 range somewhere in there. And I think like after we all went through the ups and downs of, you know, like, like, like watching him play, um, you know, you see, you still see some of the flaws from Detroit, but you also see what a better environment has done for him. Um, I think he's probably properly rated because I think most people see him like a cut below the Mahomes is the Allens, the Brady's. Um, yeah. So I think he would probably be in that like six to 10 category. Okay. Lamar then. Cause Lamar's really, really interesting. Like a that. separate category almost, right? Like, he's like, like his own category because you know, <laughs> yeah. it, this, this world is because Polian and Booger McFarlane, said maybe you should try something else, which was also said about Tebow by Mel Kuyper Jr. Um, 
And that has turned into like the, the hoodie that says not bad for running backs hysterical. Like it's a really good thing. Like everybody's been cool with it. Like he's been really good. And then this year wasn't as good. And the playoff part of it isn't as good. I just think it's funny that anytime you now criticize Lamar, it's like, what are you doing? Like, oh, you're, one of the, you're Napoleon. You're one of those guys. And I've <laughs> yeah. been on, you know, I've been, but yeah. uh, I don't know. He hadn't been great in the middle of the year. But again, yeah. that team is such a mess. I don't know what's fair of, of being critical of Lamar. So, uh, I mean, I like, I think it's hard because it's like, it, it is like a separate category because like, and I've talked to him a bunch about this. Like, he really does. Like, he, he's worked so hard at it to like become better as a passer, become more evolved as a passer. He's changed some of his mechanics. I think that the, you saw them earlier in the year when they had more of like a full deck. Like, he came from behind a few times. And so I think Lamar's probably, probably maybe a little underrated just because I don't think people take into account the ways that he can pressure a defense that aren't considered traditional quarterback things and the stress that he puts on a defense. And it's like, Oh, well, you know, like this set up this way. So he's throwing to this guy wide open over here. Well, yeah, that's because that's the stress that he's putting on the defense. Like that's part of the package with him, you know? And so like, I think to, to get the most out of Lamar, you have to play offense a certain way. And I think he went to the perfect place and that John Harbaugh invests in his players that way. And Greg Roman had the sort of packages that, that, that work for him. Um, I think like, you know, if, if you're saying to me that he would be a top 10 quarterback in any offense, no, like he wouldn't be like, you have to set things up a certain way to succeed with him, but being in the right place, I think some people underrate just how much stress he puts on a defense and, and what he does to you kind of like how he can get, get, get good coaches out of sorts with everything that he brings to the table. So thing is like it's just so hard to judge it now because like you said they're you know such a mash unit around him all right we can go a little quicker with these last three yep. matt ryan whose qbr is actually a career low and and very low but i can't believe atlanta when i when i think about this team in general i mean you know look i i know they they pulled that one out i mean they're they're seven and eight i can't yeah. believe atlanta seven and eight yeah, Arthur Smith, coach of the year. I mean, he's done a great job if you look at it, right? Calvin Ridley, no one talks about that. Like, walked out on them in the middle of the year. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, we they, forgot about it. I mean, Tomlin. If we're going by the the standard of who you are as a team, like Tomlin to me would be right there with Smith. Of far as you know, look the the kind of I can't believe these teams have this many wins when you watch Pittsburgh all season long and you watch Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. So I like I think like I. I think Matt Ryan, I think he's a little like, I think he's a little underrated just in that. Like, I think most people think he's done and I don't think he's done, but I think you have to be really good around him. Um, you know, I think he's sort of like where Breeze was and I, you know, it's interesting because their, their new GM, Terry Fontenot was in New Orleans with Breeze. And so he was part of building around Breeze that those last five years where they were really bad, you know, in 15 and 16, they were really bad. And then they had a couple draft classes where they just knocked it out of the park. When you know, there was the one class where they drafted Ramshek and Kamara and Lattimore and Marcus Williams and Trey Hendrickson, and like so, I think that that's the phase of the uh, of that's the that 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 that's the phase of career that Matt Ryan is at right now, where he just he needs a lot of support around him. And you know, I think you know the same way I mentioned with Hertz and um and 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 uh, and and Mills. 
like how they give their team some flexibility to wait on the quarterback. I think Matt Ryan does that for Atlanta too, where they can draft a Kyle Pitts last year, right? Like if they're not just sold and over the moon for, you know, for, for Justin Fields or Mac Jones, like he gave them the flexibility to go in and bring in a player who's probably going to be an all pro for the next decade. Right. So yeah, I mean, I think Matt Ryan, like I think you can still win with him if you're really good around. Okay. Let's, uh, let's finish up these last two Garoppolo. Oh, I think Garoppolo's underrated. I, I, I think he's, I think he's taken so many and God, I sound like I'm kissing ass now. Cause I'm saying everybody's underrated. Right. Uh, but I, I, but I think like Jimmy is more talented than people give him credit for. I think Jimmy's better quarterback than people give him t- credit for. I think Jimmy could go to like a Cleveland or a Carolina and be a perfectly competent answer next year if those guys, if those teams wind up striking out on Watson or Wilson. You know, I, I just, I mean, he got the team to a Super Bowl. Like, he's got ability. Is he going to be like, is he going to be your answer for the next 10 years? No, but. You know, could be he be perfectly fine as a you know two year three year stopgap? Absolutely, I think he can win with Jimmy Garoppolo. Yeah, I totally disagree with that one. I thought he was overrated. You hate Garoppolo? I thought he was overrated in New England. I thought everybody talked him up like crazy. Think about the pricing. So you think he's one. a product of the coaching? Then is what you're saying, right? I can't look. You're sitting there saying he should would be he'd be fine in Cleveland. I hate to see what he looked like away from Kyle <laughs> Shanahan. Are you kidding me? Like talent, fine. Hip thrusters. That whole thing that Lynch used to talk about when they gave yeah. him that stupid extension that it was ridiculous. <laughs> and then they bragged about how the extension was brilliant because they paid him so much money up front and that they would have more room later on. And you're like, why? Why would you do this? The team told us what they thought about him. Oh, no, they, they traded did. up. They traded yep. up from 12 to number three and threw in two firsts and a third. Think how ridiculous no this pricing is. That Garoppolo, despite at the time, in the moment, me thinking he was overrated, gets you a second. But yet we already saw that he could sort of play the position. All right. In a very yeah. limited span with New England, we saw that he could play the position. That cost you a second rounder. For Trey Lance, who played one fucking game his last year in college, it cost the 12th pick, a first and 23, a first and 22, and a third yeah. for a guy that played one game in a year and had never played in the NFL. That is insane, like pricing. That's a whole, that's, that's a, a whole, you know what though? Like what's interesting about it though? Like Ryan, this is a different discussion. That's the Mahomesization of the NFL. That is Kyle Shanahan having outcoached Andy Reid for three and a half quarters in the Super Bowl and Andy Reid having a quarterback that made it all not matter, right? Like that's Kyle Shanahan recognizing like, all right, like over the next 10 years, am I going to be able to compete with, Josh Allen with Justin Herbert with Patrick Mahomes. And I think that's the way a lot of these teams are thinking now. It's the way the Rams were thinking, right? Like when they flipped out golf to go and get Stafford, it's can we level up and compete with the Aaron Rodgers of the world with what we have? I think you're going to see more teams doing that this offseason too. Like I think Cleveland's one to watch. Like Cleveland, it's not that they hate Baker. It's more than anything. I think it's like, can like can we level up with Baker? Are we willing to pay Baker 40 million a year? And if we aren't, like we've got it budgeted. Who are we willing to pay $40 million a year? What do the Browns look like with Deshaun Watson at quarterback? You know what I mean? Like, so I think that that's sort of like what you're talking about, I think, is as much where the league is going. It's like the Mahomesization of the NFL, where I think like there's like sort of this super elite class of quarterbacks now that have just this outrageous physical ability. And I think some other teams, like, there's just concern there. Are we going to be able to keep up? 
with these teams that have these quarterbacks. And I think that's why you see the Rams bail on Goff and go to Stafford. I think that's why you see the Niners bail on Garoppolo and go to go to Lance. Okay, um, let's just finish here real quick. Kyler Murray. Um, I think like for the time being a little overrated. Um, I, I love Kyler. I think Kyler, like, I think he's got, I think he's like got the like right sort of way about him. Um, I do think that there are some things in Arizona that have been sort of perfect for him. And like, I just wonder, you know, when he gets into a playoff setting, what that's going to look like. You know, and and when he gets into a, a setting where, you know, these one-off games where a defense is game playing for him and him alone, is he going to be able to take over the same way that he has? And is he going to be able to win from the pocket? Um, is he going to be able to win without DeAndre Hopkins out there? Like, there's just, I really like so much about Kyler's game. And I think, like, again, like, I think he's the right kind of kid. I think he's just, I like, I just... I, I, there are some things that we haven't seen yet that I need to see. So I hear some people talking about him as if he's a top five quarterback already. I don't think he's there. That is Albert Breer, the Monday morning quarterback. Check it out, SI.com. Thanks as always, man. You got it, Ryan. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Let's talk some hoops after a Christmas slate and some Sunday results as well. Uh, Kevin O'Connor host of The Mismatch. Great stuff on The Ringer as well. Uh, he's with our guy Verno on The Mismatch. Okay, um, Golden State beats Phoenix. Like That's kind of what I want to focus on in the, here in the beginning. Looking at those top three teams in the West, because it's, it's pretty clear, even though I really love watching Memphis play basketball, it feels like it's those three. The record with Utah, the point differential. Phoenix's point differential, not quite we think it is. Golden State, even without Clay, uh, I thought that was a monumental win. I, I kind of went into it feeling like, you know, I like Phoenix against Utah. But I, maybe I like Phoenix against Golden State with the Aiton part of it, Kevin. Um, when you look at Aiton's numbers, he averages the most points per game against Golden State of any team he's played more than once. Um, but it didn't feel like it was a problem for Golden State on Saturday at all. And even with Booker missing some time. So sometimes you look at the record, you're not quite sure what to do with it. But the point is, is now all of it's irrelevant, as I've said the entire time, because they're getting Clay back, they're getting Wiseman back. And now it's like, I can't believe how good Golden State is without those guys. And I thought that win on Saturday maybe just goes just kind of scary for the rest of the West in a way. I mean, the fact they have the number one defense in the NBA right now, pretty by a pretty good wide margin right now. I mean, there's teams, you know, that are catching up, but this team on the defensive end of the floor where everybody talks about what Clay's gonna bring offensively, but it's that defense that stabilizes them every single night. And I think with Aiton, he at times did feast inside, but isn't that what Golden State wants sometimes when they're switching those screens and they get Gary Payton the second sticking to Devin Booker? Isn't that what they want? They want that interior guy getting those touches because this this team that they 
they might not have that size, but they will get Wiseman back eventually. But Golden State is going to beat you when there's space in that floor with Draymond at the five, forcing you to go inside or having Looney out there sometimes. But uh, I feel like with Golden State, Ryan, it's that defense that has really driven them through this early season and kept stabilizing things, even on nights where maybe um, offensively they don't have everything. Yeah, I guess I feel like there's moments I still have an outdated thought of of bigs and what they're supposed to be. But, you know, a lot of it, too, isn't just the points, it's the rebounding. And they've been able to kind of control eight. And again, it's just the three regular season games. His rebounding numbers aren't crazy. The points are good. Though Aiton's missing more free throws this year, which is uh, a little surprising. And not hitting so, many more jumpers either yet. Yeah, his scoring is up, but the free throw part of it is down. So who knows? You know, maybe it's just a weird, fluky few months stretch there. But, you know, the reason I've always loved um, what – well, I shouldn't put it that way. Aiton has been frustrating to me at times, despite the gifts. And then I think he kind of turned that corner last year. Um, but we just know, like, as a big, even as athletic as Aiton is, you're just not going to be an option. So even if you have a physical advantage over the opposition, like, it's not like anybody's going to just check it into the post a couple, you know, like 10 times a night. You're not going to get 10 post isolations. There's a couple times they got it to him and it looked like he finished really well. I think the great thing about Aiton is that he's a big that you never worry about having on the floor. Like he's not going to get exposed like some other bigs that you're worried about and some switching if teams go hunting for you at the end of the playoffs. So as much as I like that Aiton is a guy that can play the full 30, 36 minutes, say in a playoff game, he's like 31 in the regular season. Um, it didn't really it wasn't that big of a deal like it wasn't a, it wasn't even an issue at all on saturday night or saturday day depending on when you were watching yeah i mean i think that's that's really the issue golden state is going to present they they have the ability to play any single style at all and with this team i, I feel like I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts ryan because we see kaminga starting to get minutes Gary Payton obviously has been sensational for them. He's actually shooting the three-pointer very, very well for them, uh, standing in the corner a lot of the time, spotting up. I just think with this Golden State team, I mean, Phoenix and Utah are also sensational. Uh, to me, Golden State is a level above them uh, when you factor in what they're going to be when Clay Thompson returns with the amount of options they have. I mean, they can beat you if you have a big guy who plays in the interior. They can beat you if they need to go small. They have so many different lineup configurations that they can use, different combinations, and that's only going to grow more and more as Kaminga gets better over the course of the season, as you'd expect to happen. If Wiseman does get better over the course of the season now in the second year with Clay coming back, I, I just look at Golden State. They have the personnel just to play any style of basketball against any type of opponent. And, and to me, that that's what gives them an edge over the Suns and Jazz, uh, even though both of those teams are also tremendous in their own ways. Yeah, the Kaminga minutes have been a lot of fun because oh, so you know, good. <laughs> it's the opposite of, and you know, I know you spend a lot of time on this, um, so I'm curious your thoughts on it. But like, this version of Kaminga is the opposite of the version that we saw in <laughs> the high school stuff yeah. and, the, and the G League because it was all kind of freelance. And that's been my Wiseman point is that when you show up to Golden State, you don't get to freelance like some of the other top draft picks that are with bad organizations. And even though that's frustrating and then it makes you think like, wait, is this guy any good? There are Kaminga moments that are are just, you know, Wiseman had some of these too, but there are Kaminga moments where it's also within the construct of what they're actually trying to do. And so I don't know if he gets Toscano Anderson's minutes, who's, you know, fluctuated, um, you know, I don't I don't know where those minutes are going to come. And as they start ramping up and really worrying about it, I'm like, I look in a playoff game is coming to be to be out there in the fourth quarter of games. I doubt it. But there are glimpses of him 
I don't want to overstate this and say, hey, there's glimpses that this guy's going to be really, really special. But the glimpses are positive. Let me just leave it at that. No, I mean, 100%. And that's the thing you mentioned. Is he going to be playing fourth quarter minutes? Maybe not. But maybe, maybe there will be a night. And I think that's the luxury Steve Kerr is going to have this entire season where if Kaminga is having one of those off night where he looks like a rookie, he's making defensive mistakes, missing rotations, makes a couple bad passes, he can go to Toscano Anderson uh, a guy who is more reliable, maybe doesn't have the upside of Kaminga. I mean, you don't have Jordan Poole in that game against the Phoenix Suns. Otto Porter's the guy going off. They just have uh, uh, so many options and so many guys that they can turn to where if one guy is having an off night or is injured or is in COVID protocols, whatever it might be, they just have so many different guys that they can turn to. And then Clay Thompson still isn't back. It, it's just outrageous that they're off to the start. Anything on Utah, um, because you know, the numbers with Mitchell, Conley, and Gobert, there are almost 120 points per 100 possessions. Hey, by the way, can I ask you this? Because I think I've, I've been guilty of it. I've I probably seen you. When somebody writes about a lineup and then says, hey, this lineup with these five guys scores 121 per 100 possession, mm-hmm. which would be the highest ever in NBA history. And you're like, yeah, but they don't play. Like, <laughs> they aren't though. Yeah. And then or it'd be like this group is, you know, 94 points per 100 percent, which would be the worst ever in the last 10. Everybody does that over and over again. And I actually think it's like incredibly misleading because you can take snippets of any of these minute allotments and then go, hey, this would be the best ever. This would be the worst ever. I can't keep reading that this would be the best lineup ever or the worst lineup ever as many times as I have in the last (laughs) 10 years and think it fucking means anything anymore. And I think we as the NBA community that covers it, we need to stop doing this. Like, I want to know what the numbers are. I don't want to know where they'd rank historically because it's like 120 combined minutes so far in the season. I think we all have erred in that. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we've all used that lineup data. And, you know, I mean, sometimes it's fun to look at. I, I think those early season samples are at least often interesting to think about, like, oh, maybe they should do more of this. But like looking at it from a results perspective, when there's only like, I don't know, 45 minutes logged, like there could be a one minute stretch in those 45 minutes that turns it from a plus 25 net rating to a plus eight. Like that, that's all it can take with those small samples to change things so much. Um, but I, I like looking at those the lineup numbers in terms of who's actually playing together, and, and not really from a results perspective, but yes. from a process perspective. Like who who is the coach putting out there more often? What is what are they not doing enough of? What should they experiment with that they're not doing now? And like with Utah, just to relate it to them, it's like Rudy Gay's played twenty seven minutes at the five. 27 minutes and they're like a minus five net rating in those minutes, but it's at least interesting that they've experimented with not having Gobert or Whiteside out there for a short amount of time. I mean, so that's just little things like that are what I look for when it comes to lineup data, at least at this point of the season. And we know that lineup data for those three guys uh, for Utah is terrific, but I mean, it feels like it keeps landing on the same place. It's like, Hey, Utah, awesome record. Really like this group. I love Donovan Mitchell. I thought Stephen A. saying that Donovan Mitchell's the most talented jazz player was not even remotely controversial. I, I was like, wait, people have a problem with this? Because um, I understand the Stockton Malone resumes and the stats, but um, Malone can't do the shit that Donovan Mitchell does. I mean, this is—I don't even know. Why I have to say this out loud. Uh, so and he said, "Talented, not greatest." That was the word he used, right? Yeah, talented. he said, "Talented, yeah, yeah. most is, talented." Right? Okay, that's fair. Yeah, keep I'm it sure. moving. Um, is there anything when you watch them 
where you can you can buy buy into them coming out of the West. I mean, like I said, I, I think the Golden State Warriors are on their own tier right now. Um, with, with Utah, you'd have to have a lot break, right? Uh, they're going to have some of the same issues against Warriors uh, amplified even more than they had against the Clippers last year. And I think with Utah, it, I reported a story on Gobert earlier this year that started last season. And you talked to the people in that organization. They, they believe had the team been fully healthy, they would have beaten the Clippers and advanced in the playoffs. And who knows? Maybe they could have went all the way to the finals. And I mean, maybe we'll see how things could have been different, but they weren't healthy. Um, with this team, I, I don't, I feel like they're missing something. Like I mentioned Rudy Gay playing the five. Um, they got to have that option to turn to in certain moments of games. Gobert, I feel like the, all the, 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 the knocks on him are way overblown. Gobert is a sensational talent. He can't stop all five guys on the court when teams space them out. Um, but they do have to have that option, that, that that lineup to turn to where they can go to the five and reliably create buckets and get stops. But when they've done that, they've just been so small, um, getting pounded on the board. So I, I'd like to see them have a little bit more lineup versatility, kind of the opposite of what we were just talking about with Golden State. They have so many options. So many combinations that they can turn to with Utah. The reason why you got people like John Hollinger at the Athletics saying Gobert is an MVP candidate is because they're so reliant on him on both ends of the court. He is the defensive system. Offensively, he is critical to what they do with his rim running and screening. If you pull that out, it changes who they are and they aren't anywhere as good. So I'd like to see them have another alternative with those non-Gobert minutes. That's highly productive for me to feel better about their odds in a postseason. Yeah, I've read that. We like John. He's wrong. You know, if I'm not remotely scared of you with the ball in your hands, you can't be an MVP. I'm sorry. Like I'm with the you rules. there, Ryan. Yeah. Those are the rules. Uh, all right. Let's look at the East. Brooklyn's still finding a way. Uh, we'll get to that Lakers comeback that did, you know, Brooklyn still held out with that with no Durant. Um, the Bulls game and a half out there. This Bulls story has been terrific. But then you look at what Milwaukee did against Boston, which isn't remotely surprising, really, I don't think. Milwaukee, I think, is 14-2 and two with their three guys, Giannis, Drew, and Middleton, who missed a little bit of a stretcher in the middle of this month. So let's TBD the whole Brooklyn part of it, um, which I still think is really impressive that this team is 22-9 and nine going through all the stuff that they've gone through. Yeah. Um, Cleveland actually has the best point differential by a pretty healthy margin as a fifth seed right now. <laughs> But when I look at Chicago, as much as I love the rotation of the guards, everybody kind of, I don't like their bench, and I worry about in a playoff series who guards Durant and who guards Giannis for Chicago. Where are you with Chicago? Like, basically, here's the deal: Chicago better than everybody thought. Congrats! It's awesome. It's fun to watch. I like the numbers. Now we want to start talking about you in the big boy neighborhood. That's that's a problem for them. I think that might not be solvable. I mean, they have pretty much all the championship ingredients except what you just mentioned the the stopper you know the guy who can bother a Durant or Giannis or at least try to without Patrick Williams uh, missing the, the at least the whole regular season we, we don't know yet if he's actually going to be back for the playoffs they said all of the regular season in all likelihood but having a guy with size they've used Derek Jones Jr for 70 possessions in their matchup against the Nets earlier this year. Javante Green for 31 possessions against KD. They haven't faced the Bucs yet, so we'll see how they defend him. But they do need a defender with with size and bulk to defend the Giannis's or, or the KDs of the world. And But with that said, though, Ryan, I mean, who were the Bulls entering the season? When we talked about Chicago before the year, it was this is going to be a team that's going to win games 
with their offense, not their defense. The defense has been better than expected despite some of those missing pieces. DeRozan, ever since his first year in San Antonio, has been one of the best isolation scorers in basketball, a great pick-and-roll shot creator. We saw in that fourth quarter on Christmas turning you know, the ball over to Zach Levine, giving him an opportunity to be the guy down the stretch. Those guys can take turns, but also play together without getting stagnant on offense. So, I mean, this offense is going to continue to be uh, really the, 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 the fuel behind their success. That it's going to be the reason why they go deep into the playoffs. They could go deep into the playoffs. Um, but you're right. At some point, there will come a time where not having that defender with size and length could be problematic. But is there a way for them to get that within their roster? Is it Patrick Williams? Is that enough? Is it too much to ask for a second-year guy? Or should they be thinking about you know the trade market and maybe even including Patrick Williams to find somebody? Should they even be going all in? This year, or should they be playing it slow? I, I, uh, they have a lot of ingredients, but they are missing that. My favorite game is uh, the national broadcaster zag game, where all of us kind of generally agree on something because it's true, and then national broadcast comes in and has the game with the team or the, the guy that you think a certain thing, and then they tell you that it's not true when you're like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" So this past week we had. Uh, announcers telling us that Carmelo Anthony was actually an underrated defensive player. Um, we had <laughs> a defensive JaVale McGee's basketball IQ. And this is another one that I've heard that Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, there is no issue in their, their super talented guys. Hey, we know they're super talented. Um, I would have pushed back. I have pushed back for a couple of years on the idea that you have to worry about Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum playing together. Um, I've said this too many times, you know, in a vacuum, two extremely talented mid-20s, not even mid-20s for Tatum, um, wings that can defend, that can dribble, that can shoot, that can do all these things. That's the foundation of what you would want, and you can't mess with that. you got to figure it out. you got to figure the pieces around. I think they're 500 in their last 100-something games. They continue to be a team emotionally that I just don't think answers the bell. Uh, I thought they were soft last year. I've seen nothing to change that. I tracked the – it was 3.30 to go. They were up 109-105 on Milwaukee on Saturday. So I go, you know what? I'm going to keep tracking the plays here. Six of the next seven plays, they ran isolations. People could give me a hard time and say, well, actually, there was a switch and they were hunting George Hill. It ended up in an isolation. So if you want to make it the standard of an isolation where a guy brings it across half court and nobody else is even involved, that's fine. But it was isolation. Uh, they ended up with four points, Jalen Brown bucket, and uh, two free throws from Jalen. There was one kick out in those seven plays that I said, okay, fine, I won't count that as isolation. I am now open to the idea because I've watched it now long enough and I just don't like the personality of the, the Celtics team led by the two guys. Like I like Tatum. I like Jalen. I'm now open to the idea that maybe this isn't going to work because we've had a lot of evidence that it doesn't. And Milwaukee and blowing that lead, like anybody that's watched the Celts, you almost knew that was coming. But when and, and for what? I mean, that that's my biggest question with breaking up. Okay, Tatum let's start at the first part. Let's start at the first part. I'm not even saying, hey, do it. Yeah. I'm just now open to the idea that maybe these guys just, you know, whatever it is, whatever the vibe of this team, maybe it 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 doesn't work with those two guys. So I'm not saying, hey, let's make this happen before February. Uh, but do you agree with the first part as somebody who's Definitely. covered this I, team? I mean, I, I think those two guys, they aren't necessarily as a duo in that untouchable duo category. I mean, you're at least thinking about it. Like if you're in that Celtics front office, Brad Stevens brings everybody together for a meeting and you're talking about all these theoretical ideas. 
it should be something that's at least in discussion for, hey, what could happen over the summer? What if this opportunity becomes available? I think you're, you're really doing yourself a disservice as a, fr- as a franchise if you're not at least talking about those things and those potential paths forward. Because with Tatum and Brown, that, that fourth quarter against Milwaukee that you mentioned where it was six or seven plays with isolations, it's just so stagnant. And in, many, in some ways, you can't necessarily say, oh, the Celtics should have kept running their stuff because Milwaukee was switching everything. That's what Milwaukee does defensively to get you out of your stuff. But the fact is, and Celtics fans got mad at me for writing this recently, but Tatum and Brown just haven't been efficient ISO scorers. Tatum's been one of the worst high ISO volume guys in the league this year. Yes, this year and for years, for that matter. He got a little bit better towards the end of the 1920 season, but the last year and this year have not been as good. I mean, if you look at the second spectrum data, 51 guys going back to last season, have logged at least 300 isolations. Brown is 43rd in efficiency. Tatum is 40th in efficiency. And Brown has been much better statistically this season, but it's like we talked about with lineup data earlier, Ryan. It's only on like 70 total possessions. And I mean, we'll see how that works itself out over the course of the season, but neither of those guys for years now have been anywhere better than, you know, below average in terms of isolation scoring efficiency or in terms of isolation playmaking. And those are the skills that you need to have in order to excel in those end of game fourth quarter situations to excel in those game sixes and those game sevens. And they just haven't had that. But with that said, though, Brown's 25 and Tatum's 23. And and that's why I think with Boston, it should at least be in consideration that you split them up. Because if you do split them up, you're getting a massive return and it back for them. You can change the the complexion of your roster and build around one of them with the other guy that you're getting back. But I do think there's other stuff that you should at least try doing around the edges of the roster, like finding a point guard, you know, finding somebody who can handle that in those end of game situations to get them easier shots to alleviate the amount of pressure that they have on them to have to create everything for the offense. They just haven't had that. Yeah, I'm open to it in a way I've never been open to it before, but I don't have that solution. And obviously, it's not Ben Simmons because if you're the Celtics, you're not going to do the Sixers the favor and go, okay, you know, like, honestly, you'd have to throw in something with Simmons to get Jalen at this point. I mean, Jalen Brown would be fucking perfect. Be like, hey, problem solved. Plays defense, gets it, can shoot, can handle. Uh, But again, as you described Tatum and Brown individually, you would always say, I always want those guys. That's why I've always fought back against the idea of this. And I don't know what you've heard, too. I I heard they get along fine. Yeah. Um, that this isn't some personality thing that they just absolutely don't like each other. I know that there's different reporters that feel differently about that from what I've heard, and I feel pretty good about it. And it's like, dude, it's fine. It's not It's not even an issue. Um, they, they get along, but maybe the, the leadership isn't there, as you mentioned earlier, in the way yeah. that it needs to be. And the hanging out thing, you expose yourself as a guy that doesn't understand the NBA world where you're like, well, those guys don't hang out that much. That's the way it is in the league. Like, mm-hmm. It's almost not cool to hang out with the other star. Like, You have <laughs> your guys, and you hang out. And then I think, you know, players are a lot older and they get over it individually um, and understand sacrifice, then the teams actually can be a little bit closer um, when when the guys are a little bit older uh, in a different way. But usually younger players that have a certain level of status, a lot of those guys actually just do their own thing, even if they like the other guy who's a star. All right. Um, you know, what was funny about that, too, because I was looking at like last late shot clock possession offensive efficiency numbers because I was I was just sorting a bunch of different Boston stuff over the weekend. And it reminded me of the number that came up because because Embiid missed a shot against Atlanta. And it was like Embiid's one for 18 now, five seconds to go game 
tied or down one. So game winners, less than five seconds to go. I'm like, man, one for 18. They're like, it's the second worst <laughs> gamble who's 0 for 25. I'm like, my God, that number's so bad. And I go, you know what, though? That number's so bad. And when I really think about it, less than five seconds to go in that spot's really hard. I'm like, what are the rest of them? And then Micah Adams, I believe, who used to be at ESPN. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, oh, great. <laughs> and um, another guy who was with the Bucks started showing me some of the data that they had. It was like, everybody's terrible. Like, almost everybody's really bad. <laughs> Jokic had some really good numbers in that spot to emphasize how impossible a situation it is. So then I started, like, looking at league-wide, less than four seconds to go on the shot clock, at least for this season. So if you look at, I don't know, you know, the best offenses are, like, 115, 117 per 100 possession. The Lakers are number one in the NBA for a team less than four seconds to go on the shot clock. It's 63 points per 100 possession. <laughs> and I'm losing. Even KOC is like, dude, I don't, I'm not even that much. I'm not interested in this anymore. Um, <laughs> Detroit's last at 44 points per 100. Then it's Orlando. And then it's Boston. So the third worst team in a sorted stat that could totally change and may not mean that much later on. But I, I looked at those numbers and, you know, again, it caused me a bunch of shit because I couldn't believe Westbrook took 27 threes. He had even more attempts, six of 27. And then people were like, it's better percentage than Lillard. I'm like, yeah, but the whole point is that, that Westbrook, who can't shoot threes, has taken 27 threes with five seconds left in that spot throughout his career. And he's not good at doing it. So that transitions us into the Lakers game. Down big, they come back. Uh, everybody that was paying attention to it, because I'm always looking for it late, a bad Westbrook defensive decision. He gave us one. It's like you order it and it shows up to your house. Uh, <laughs> I always do it. It's a bad habit, but it's a habit that I'm just like, hey, I'm going to see what Westbrook does here where he freelances and does whatever he wants. He gets caught up in a switch, decides to sort of help when he shouldn't. And Patty Mills, who's fucking got the nets on fire, he leaves him wide open in the corner. It's the biggest shot of the game. And Westbrook didn't know where he was. Just like decided to do his own thing once again. And it's not worked. I thought even for the regular season, Kevin, that there was a Westbrook part of this. I could, I thought his energy would help them get through the lulls. I'm still a little open to the idea, and I'm, I'm rambling a bit here, that I'm not ready to totally write off the Lakers like some other people are. But you said that the Lakers need to explore possibly trading him. Is that even realistic at $47 million next year? There's not many options out there. That's for damn sure. Uh, there's probably, what, one, two? three teams that you could even come up with some hypothetical for Russell Westbrook. I mean, really the truth is that this is, this is on Russ to evolve. It's, it's on him. It's on him to become a guy who's going to lock in defense. It's not going to happen. It's not, never going to happen. It's probably not going to, it's probably not ever going to happen, but, but why not to take a line from Russell Westbrook? Why not become a guy who's going to say to yourself <laughs> before you get in the court with, you know, a minute 30 left when you're switched on to Patty Mills, why not be the guy to say, you know what? I'm going to lock in here. I'm going to focus. I'm not going to leave Patty Mills who has 31 points and is like, like you said, as the nets on fire, like why not? do that why not be a guy who's doing some of the dirty work like Carmelo Anthony for years people were saying about him oh you know he's always going to play his way he's always going to take mid-range shots well he's become a guy who's taking more shots within the flow of the offense becoming a better three-point shooter a more committed defender Dwight Howard for years is a guy who is posting up posting up demanding post-ups now he's a guy who brings energy who runs up and down the floor, who rebounds, who rim runs, who sets screens and rolls. He doesn't demand post-ups anymore. And Westbrook isn't at that point of his career. He's not at that point of his career where he needs to become a role player. 
but why can't this be a transition phase where he's doing some role player things in addition to the stuff he does as a guy who energizes your offense as a pick and roll shot creator, as an ISO guy. I, I just don't see how it's unreasonable to expect more from a great player. He's one of the 75 greatest players in NBA history from the NBA 75th anniversary list. Why? I don't see how it's unreasonable to expect more from a guy like that at this stage of his career on a team where he's teammates with LeBron and AD. I just don't see how it's unreasonable. Well, the theory isn't unreasonable. The the, yeah. the thing you're—it's like asking a waterfall to go in another direction. It's just—is <laughs> it? Is it though? It I is. Mean, it, I, is I it, can't he, believe people can change, Ryan. Players no, we can do change. This, we do this shit with quarterbacks. Like you're seven, fourth coordinator, and we're like, you know, if you could just figure out a way to eliminate some of the mistakes. I don't know. I, there's just too many guys that we we give all this. And we just—I think the best way to Did, say it is like it's like hope. Like you go, oh, like why would you think that this is going to change at any point? If you're doing this, and this is, you know, I, I don't even need to keep going because I've gone forever. And then it turns well, into this thing. It's do, like, do, it sounds do like I believe personal. in him too much? Do I believe in him too much? Is that thing? Because people like with that tweet, they say, oh, you're a Russ hater, you know, blah, 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 this and that. Do I believe in him too much to, to at least have for a you sliver to, of hope? For you to have an open mind that all of a sudden he's going to change his approach to basketball, I think is absurd. So, yeah, I, I'm not trying to be mean about it. Just, you know. Hey. I don't think so. I I don't. I still think there's a chance when you're playing with LeBron James, fit in or fit out, Ryan. Okay. Did you come up with a trade? Because KOC and I are going to finish it here. Uh, <laughs> How about Westbrook that, for Wall? That was such a great. Yeah, Westbrook for Wall. That's like the one that makes any sliver of sense for for LA. I'm not sure it makes sense for Houston because I put that on my article on Monday on the Ringer, and Houston Rockets fans are like, hell no. <laughs> Wait, Houston people said no. <laughs> Houston fans are like, hell no. Keep um, them away. We we like John Wall being inactive. <laughs> I don't know how accurate the information is now. Cause you know sometimes you'll get information on something like, hey, what's going on with this? What are people saying? And then, you know, by the time you talk about it, it's a month removed. So I don't think this is the newest stuff. But when I talk to somebody about Wall, which mm. is like, you know. Because I think you and I, and a lot of people understand this, like as bad as contracts have been, you look at them and say, never fall for that and think that it's impossible to move some of these deals. But the irony of the Wall Westbrook storyline is that they were traded for each other. It's a lot like the uh, Richard Lewis Gilbert Arenas trade. You know, you're like, how are you ever going to get off of these contracts? <laughs> you're like, oh, well, we'll just we'll trade them for each other. You go, okay, all right, problem solved. Um, the fact it's already happened once would be weird for it to happen again. But the, the <laughs> intel, which I don't know that it's changed all that much, it's like, look, at least Westbrook's playing. Like the yeah. wall market is non-existent because you don't even know what you're getting because he might not even play. Although I did read one wall trade destination thing where somebody was like, hey, here's five places you go. It's one of the worst things I've ever read. Uh, none of it made any sense. And as soon as you start saying like Wall's leadership would be a valued thing, you're like, eh, I don't know, I don't know about that. <laughs> um, even though you know there have been times I kind of like John Wall in the past. So, all right, do you have do you have a couple realistic trades then? Because I put together at least like two grown up. I don't have a Ben Simmons one, although the the intel I'm getting on Simmons is this feels like it might be like a Brett Favre deal where it's about going from point A to B to get to C. So. I, I don't think mm. the Ben Simmons crew feels like they have the same influence on calling their shot. I think at this point, the first goal is get him out of Philadelphia and then pick it up again maybe later on. Because um, I've heard some trades with Ben Simmons where people have shot him down. I'm going, I don't know. I, I think at this point, he's just kind of 
he'd be open to just getting out of there. So uh, whatever you have here, let's finish up with these. Um, how about uh, Fox and Bagley from Sacramento to Indiana for Sabonis and Lavert as like a foundation for a trade? You know, you had some picks, whatever, but something like that. Get, get Sabonis to Sacramento, a team that has a mandate to make the postseason, have some balance on that roster. Halliburton, that recent four-game stretch he had, Ryan, without Fox. Oh, my yeah. God. He was unbelievable. He had like 100-plus touches per game. He was dominant for Sacramento. Granted, they were still dropping games, but something like that uh, is one that I'm into. How about if Utah wait, wants to trade? Wait, 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 wait. We got to stay on. Is Sabonis the best piece in this trade? Or, or where are you with the Sabonis thing? Because I, I think I love, there's a I love real... Sabonis. Okay, do you think a lot of people love Sabonis, or do you think there's some anti-Sabonis? There's 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 anti-Sabonis people. There are. I've talked to some NBA there people are. that com- that they, they complain about how he holds the ball, like he doesn't whip the ball, he doesn't make quick decisions, that he that he stagnates the offense. That, that's look, he, he certainly can't be your one, and you gotta you gotta make sure you keep him involved because he's still a little old school and some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I think Brogdon does a really good job, like on his drives, because Brogdon's drives is one of the weirdest players I've ever watched. You're like, yeah. Oh, there he is again at the rim, past everybody. I don't know how he got there, but he did. And then, you know, Sabonis comes over off the help. Uh, the Fox thing, I feel guilty like giving. I feel like Fox is Colin Sexton, but cooler. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes I worry where I'll be like, all right, this guy can do some things. Look at, hey, he had 35 the other night. Ooh, a triple-double. This is cool. And you're like, ah, the team loses all the time. And Darren Fox at the end of games, I don't know how many seasons, but this season, I, I don't know what the latest numbers were, but at one point this year, the numbers were absolutely atrocious um, on some of his his finishing moments in there. I almost like that deal better from Sacramento if you keep Levert. I'm just not a Levert guy. Yeah, and I'm he's all right. He's okay. All right. Um, okay, give me your Utah one. How about, uh, let's say Utah wants to trade some offense for, you know, a better defender. To, just to throw this back to the them playing some more small ball. Boyan Bogdanovich for Jeremy Grant. And again, just a baseline of a deal, probably adding something else in that. Because Grant can provide some offense for you, not in the same way Bogdanovich provides knockdown shooting, but he's a far superior defender. You could play him at the four next to Gobert or Whiteside. You can maybe even play a little bit of small ball five with him. And and that, that to me, is the intriguing thing for Utah. And another guy to think about, maybe Thad Young, um, a cheaper option for Utah. But if I'm the Jazz, my priority between now and the deadline is finding somebody who can give me another strong option with those non-go-bear minutes, because it's not always going to be white side. If you have to rely on white side in certain playoff series, I think you're in trouble. Um, so, I mean, granted, he has not been bad, but in a postseason series, um, you got to have an option out there to go with a, a four and a five who have versatility. Wow, that's a really good one. Really good one, because I got to think about it. And I was not the biggest Jeremy Grant guy. I thought he was actually pretty overrated. And then he got to Detroit, and they let him take 20 shots a game. But you did. I mean, to be fair, it wasn't just the stats. You saw a rounding outness to his offensive game that you just hadn't experienced before because yeah. he was never really allowed to do it. I don't love that he could just disappear rebounding-wise for some stretches. But it would feel like Utah would just have a completely different flexibility thing there. Although I'd be a little worried about you know, they use Bogdanovich, again, in some of the bigger-bodied, you know, wing matchups, and they just shoot the hell out of the ball. I'd almost be like, yeah. I don't know, do I, am I afraid? He's good. Yeah, he doesn't get he's enough him, he's credit. Important. Yeah, he's very important. I mean, they use him so much off screens and handoffs on offense. Like he, He's the guy that when, you know, it's not working with Mitchell and Conley, they can, he's an outlet for them. Run it by Ainge. Yeah, shoot him a text. That's your guy. See, see, see what Danny thinks. <laughs> All right. I have two quick ones for you. 
Charlotte, who how about Borrego the other night, benching Lamelo and Miles mm. Bridges in the comeback against Denver. Um, but you could see, honestly, if they had a serviceable big, Charlotte's a completely different team. I mean, they're trying with Plumlee. You know, there's a couple other guys that run out there. What if they did P.J. Washington? Because they're going to make a financial decision on P.J. and Miles Bridges. I don't think you're going to be able to do both. You throw in Kai Jones and then Plumlee to make the money work for Miles Turner. But you'd have to hope that the Pacers like Kai Jones or maybe they counter and say book night and then they go, you know what? We're getting rid of Sabonis. P.J. Washington is a nice player. Uh, The fluctuation there is a little weird with that, but he can shoot the hell out of a ball for the guy that size. Um, Give me your thoughts on that. I mean, I would love Miles Turner with LaMelo. That would be a fun pick-and-roll pairing, having him also protect the the rim on the defensive end. That'd be fun. With Indiana, uh, you said they would have to like Kai Jones. I wonder how much can they get for Miles Turner? I mean, what, what I don't is think the it's that great. Honestly, because dude, we know this. A lot, KFC, a lot he's of been teams av- don't love him. He's been available for like three fucking years. Yeah. Team, teams don't right? love Turner. They don't. And I mean, you know, look, everybody's available to a certain degree. I've heard Turner's name come up like, oh, you know, we kicked the tires on this, you know, whatever. Like real stuff other than, oh, yeah, we would take a call on anybody. OK, let's just do a dumb one then. I, I had I thought two real ones. Whatever. We'll keep it at that. I think Charlotte should try to figure out a way to get a big. Um, I always mess around with trying to trade Siakam. And is there any I see. Here's the thing. If you were to ever try to do a Zion trade. And by the way, the people saying that like maybe Zion will be the first guy that turns down the rookie extension. I believe that day exists that somebody's going to do it. Why would Zion do it considering his health problems? And I I think it's now to the point, too, where um, the Zion part of it is so bad that uh, the locker room's kind of over his shit, which is like the worst thing that can happen. It's cool. The front office and fans get upset. But when your own teammates are like, all right, cool, dude, this is a good time. But I can't really add anything to Zion's 10.7 million this year that makes it work. Like I was thinking, hey, is there a Zion Siakam deal? Like if you were Toronto, do you do that for the upside part of it, feeling like you're a better organization? Or do you go, no, we can't, we can't do this because, you know, the biggest concern with Zion was he's hurt. And again, this is all bullshit hypothetical. It's not yeah. based on any sources whatsoever. <laughs> how, how many first round picks does Toronto have to give up in addition to Siakam? Is it like four? Is it five? How oh, you first? think so? Yeah. I mean, I, mean, See, I, don't I know. mean, you don't think it's that many? But here's at the problem. Th- at this at this point, like if David Griffin seriously were to consider trading Zion, which again, hype all hypothetical talk here, I wonder how much it takes in return. I, I bet it's still a significant amount for the exact reason you just said, Ryan. It's the upside factor. The fact is that this guy at 20 years old last year is still one of the 15 best players in basketball. He was sensational after late January when Stan Van Gundy put the ball into his hands. I mean, the injury concerns are real. Like he could go to, go down the Odin path, but he could go down the Embiid path. That's still a possibility. So, do you think you'd have to throw in four firsts on top of that for Zion at this point? I don't know. The other problem for New Orleans is they don't have a lot of fodder. Uh, you probably end up having to throw in another decent younger player you still like. I mean, Sadoransky. I guess you could say Jackson Hayes because he seems to be out of favor again um, because Valanciunas does more of the stuff that he was maybe trying to do. I don't know. All right. I feel like we ended on a a poor note there with my fake Zion thing because I tried this morning and it doesn't really like you. You can't be adding stuff to Zion that you actually like just to try to get the salary work for a bigger player. I just wonder if New Orleans would go, 
We'd rather have something that's steady, that's pretty good, and maybe isn't peak Zion. But as you pointed out, I think this is true right now. The highest points per 36 in NBA history is Zion last season. I think he's that's amazing. the right number. He, All he's right, thank a- you. absolutely amazing. Thank that's you, That's KOC. Um, you can also check out The Mismatch and The Void, which is in the same podcast feed and all of his great work on TheRinger.com. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Looking for a better way to watch live TV? Stream your favorite sports and shows on over 95 live channels with Hulu Plus Live TV. Get access to Hulu's entire streaming library, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, all in one plan. Start your free trial of Hulu Plus live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like Ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side by side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari. 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. All right, we're throwing a couple um, follow-up cleanups here. Uh, life advice rr at gmail.com did doris burke on the broadcast say for the golden state phoenix game did she say that the strength guy said that steph curry's doing single arm curls with 100 pound dumbbells i heard the 100 pound dumbbell i i think i missed the curl part can we get research on that <laughs> i'm just <laughs> checking right now I'm, I'm going through twitter to see i don't see anything yet all right I didn't hear the single arm curls, but the email Kyle sent to me because he just was like, do we need to check on this? And I I said, I think we do need to check on that. Um, There's no way in hell 100 arm curls would rip dudes, rip dudes elbows apart. So it's not. um, There's no way that's true. And I don't I mean, you know, Tom Platt's more of a leg guy, (laughs) you know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know who I would say, like, who could do one. I'm sure probably somebody's done it. All right, moving on. I don't think we can spend more time on it. But if it did, yeah, yeah, bummer. Yeah, I I don't know. I feel like she said something else about 100-pound dumbbells. I don't know that it was curls, but I know we're going to get a million responses no matter what to this. Um, All right. um, This guy wanted to know how I ended up at Benihana Solo at Disney World. You have not. You must be a new listener. the NBA pre-draft thing has two events. Uh, one's in Portsmouth, Virginia, the PIT, Portsmouth Invitational. I used to go to that all the time. Um, it wasn't about the players. It was about the contacts. But now it's a little harder to get around, so I don't, I don't go anymore. 
And then it used to be Chicago, and then it went to Orlando because the facilities at the Milk Center, I believe, were incredible. So you could have a million courts going. And then everybody started pulling out, so you didn't need a million games going on at the same time, right? So, um, and then all the NBA personnel people and apparently coaches complained. They were like, at least in Chicago, I get a steak and hang out in Chicago. Where in Orlando, you end up at Benihana by yourself. So that's what happened is I would be there by myself working anyway, trying to make contacts, watching some draft picks. And so I don't know, it was like five or six years, maybe. I don't remember how many years I went in a row, but I went a bunch. And that's why I ended up at Benihana solo at a at a joint grill with a bunch of newlyweds. So um, I didn't go like, hey, you know what? I got a long weekend. Let me let me bang out a Disney World trip by myself. So, yeah, I've actually stayed at the resort multiple times. I've never gone on one ride. I didn't go to any of the stuff. So there you go. I know Saruti, because people are like, how come there wasn't more of a, so you guys already know, like Saruti's know, he's, he's heard about that forever. So, uh, we also had some follow-ups in the fraternity story of, um, our house being stolen 20 something years ago. And a guy researched where I went and the house. And he said the same thing happened to his house at Yale, uh, from the same national fraternity. So shout out to those guys for picking dudes houses off left and right he also wanted to ask saruti favorite did when you went to quinnipiac what was the amount of yale socializing uh a good amount because you know we got wow. same bars actually you know like toad's bar which is my favorite spot personally um and because like most quinnipiac's in in the town outside of new haven yale is obviously in new haven but everybody would go out in new haven so actually the overlap was pretty great and you'd have people lying about which school they went to it's kind of weird then southern connecticut state yeah. was in there a little bit there's you new haven there's, there was like a bunch of schools in the area and everybody would kind of just try to like meet the yale people even though like the yale people weren't that great at partiers like shocker um but yeah it was actually a good amount a lot a lot of a lot of uh a lot of like cross-pollination at toad's place <laughs> Wait, Kyle, you had a comment in there once you heard about the fake Yale guy. It seemed I just said, ew. Interest. I don't know. I yeah, went I to mean, easily the third or fourth uh, school in the four school radius, and I never lied about which school I went to. Could have said I went to St. Lawrence. Could have said I went to Clarkson. But no, I'm at Potsdam. I guess SUNY Canton was the worst one, but what can you do? Yeah, I think it was maybe to impress girls. Like, you know, you throw on a Yale hoodie and, you know, you walk around New Haven, you go to, you, go to, you know, you go to a bar or something, see see what the scene is like. But none of my friends did that, but I knew it was a thing, which is kind of weird. Sounds embarrassing. It, it really actually is. I don't know, Kyle. I could see you as an awesome fake Yale guy. You see me, dude. You've got your Potsdam hat on it's now. but hat, I could actually. I could see you just sort of hanging out of toads, being like, yeah, whatever. Micro molecular biology, I think. It's, yeah. and then people then people would be like, well, that guy goes to Yale and be like, dude, crazy math guy. <laughs> the future president right there no big deal did you ever get into it with any slew dudes um one of my friends was like i think probably the toughest guy at, at slew so not really no toughest guy at slew is saying something yeah probably those was, guys are who's the halfback halfback and lax guy so yeah i you know uvm looked in the mirror and saw a certain thing about itself and its ability to hang and get after it and then Anytime there was any cross-pollination with UVM guys and SLU guys, which was not very often, but every mm -hmm. now and then. And I just always felt they were cut a little bit different. I always felt like they were like 10 years behind us in a horrifying way. Like, you know how when you show up <laughs> to college and you know, people be like, oh, 10 years ago, we used to be doing this. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> Although I don't know if the SLU guys looked at the UVM guys and didn't think the exact same thing because you'd get, you'd get this like alpha off. Um, <laughs> And then again, what I always remind everybody is that with no football team at UVM whatsoever, 
you're never that worried about being an idiot because you were all the kind of the same guys. Um, although slew always felt like it was just at a slightly different level. Um, and sometimes I'd run into those guys in the summer at some place. You'd be like, Hey, what's up with them? It'd be like, Oh, St. Lawrence guys. So that was I'll, always, I'll uh, ask my guy Alonzo. I'll see what he thinks. Yeah. Yeah. Let him know. Let him know. We're super curious in the 802. Okay. Um, I don't know that we want to turn it into fraternity corner, but uh, we'll just we'll do one more. All right. Because this is an actual question. And then I think we're going to put this one to bed because I'm going to feel like a loser after I read this email and tell the story. All right, guys. Six foot shoes on. 175. Running in after Ryan's fraternity <laughs> stories. I graduated this path. What's that, Kyle? No, he's six foot shoes on. That's funny to me. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. No, guys. <laughs> hey, look. Round up in life. Why round down? Right. Um Writing in after the fraternity story, I graduated college this past May. My senior year was totally derailed by COVID. All right. So he graduated apparently on time here, but um, the social part of it, you know, like that sucks for a lot of you writing in. I mean, you know, it's just a completely different experience considering those are sometimes four to six of the most amazing years ever. All right. So online class uh, admin preventing oh police admitting preventing much in the way of parties until halfway through spring semester fast forward to this fall i'm still in the town with a short-term job uh getting a re- uh, ready to apply to grad school a big reason for staying in the same town was because a lot of my closest friends including my roommate took gap years because of covid and are now seniors all right so he's still in the same town he's working he actually graduated these are all your buds they're still there this includes several guys from my year in a fraternity uh i've been by the house to see my friends this year and have stopped by for some of the bigger parties like when we had a rivalry football game Please don't share on the air. Okay, that's fine. Um, This one guy for my year happens to be a treasurer still because he took a gap year and he's been pestering me for months trying to collect dues from me, $700. I've tried just blowing him off. That'd be $700 for the fall semester, I believe. I can't imagine. That's definitely going to be what it is. I've tried blowing him off, but he won't get the hit. For context, I haven't attended any of the formals or other events that cost the house a lot of money and our fraternity has a long tradition of welcoming alums at any event, no questions asked. All the guys from my year that I've talked to say, why would you pay dues? You graduated. Quote, um, end quote, which I totally agree with. Uh, I completely agree as well. Now this guy sent me a Venmo request for fall dues. That's right. So <laughs> 700 for the semester over the holidays. And I have a feeling he's going to continue making this an issue if I stop by the house in the spring. Is there a way, is there a way for me to not pay dues while still being able to stop by the house? Or is it time to grow up and stop drinking at a fraternity house? Even if my friends live there, I'm not making, making very much of my university job while saving for grad school. And this is not an insignificant amount of money for me. Would appreciate perspective. Big fan of the pot. I could not be more on your side on this one. This is actually fucking ridiculous and honestly the solution is you get the other guys that are still in the house that are your friends and you you make this an issue and then put it to bed and be like look he lives here he's not in the fraternity he's one of our best friends he's our fucking roommate just because he graduated on time and we didn't and he still lives here works for the school like he can't come by without getting a bill and you're not even going to the higher end stuff, which you still should be able to go to anyway and pay it out of your pocket if you wanted to do it. The other problem is I brought this up before. When you turn that 22 or 23 right after school and take it from a fifth year guy who was around for a lot longer than the fifth year, just was still living in the town. There is this weird um, social barrier that you put up because you feel like, all right, I graduated. It's over. I can't be around here anymore um, because now I feel like a loser. The the speed and some of it is admirable to be like, okay, I'm done with school. I'm putting that behind me. I'm turning the page and I'm ready for the rest next point of my life. The thing is, is when you look back on it, you'd be like, why did I have such a hang up about being 22 or 23 while other guys were 21 were my <laughs> friends. And yet I felt like I had to create this barrier socially where I can't hang out with you. I'm telling you that is the biggest waste of time. 
even in the moment, if you feel like, oh, dudes are judging me, oh, you're still around. Again, you guys dealt with something unprecedented. A pandemic completely screwed up the whole class ranking. And well, not class, I, I would say class affiliation, not ranking. Um, so this is you're still there. These are your buddies, and you should be able to stop by. And honestly, there's no way anybody should be charging you for anything. Um, and all you have to do is pull a power play and get enough guys that agree with you to address this next time there's a meeting that you probably don't even go to, have it brought up. And maybe when you're not there and have the guys be like, hey, why are we why are we charging him dues now? Unless you're not telling me the full scope and you're there eating all the time and constantly crashing and you're just in place all the time. But it sounds like if other guys in the house were like, why would you have to pay dues? Then just get those guys on your side to bring it up and tell that guy to fucking delete his Venmo request. Now, I can tell you, as we've touched on the financial motivations of some of these houses, that some guys get really um, motivated by like. Oh, hey, headcount, whatever. Like when nationals would come all the time, they'd be like, hey, brother, up 20 more guys. And people like, why? These guys suck. They don't want to do the same. You know, like, what are you talking about? And then all they cared about was just, oh, this is 20 more guys writing a check every fucking semester, right? They didn't, they're not around. They're not the ones that have to hang out with them and live with them. Um, so I remember, and this is super embarrassing, so I'll just get it out of the way. My <laughs> fifth year, uh, Hard for Pete and I got an apartment in a like grown up community in the next town over. Cause we, we were thought we were staying in one house. We get kicked out of it, um, which we totally deserve to. We've been over that before on the fake lease that didn't exist. Um, and then we, he was going to, he was going to move out West or something, or maybe down South. I don't know. I was going to stay cause I was managing a bar and I still had this one stupid English course that I needed to take. And, um, which we've told before that ended up being badminton. Um, and so right at the end of that summer, after the end of my fifth year, I was like, shit, well, um, what are we doing? And he's like, I'm not moving. Let's try to find a place. And we had a week to find a place. We even asked the place to extend after we told them we weren't. We're like, hey, actually, we're good. We try to like play dumb. We're like, no, no, we're good. We're going to stick around. They're like, yeah, we're good. We're like, you guys aren't great fits for this adult community. There's old people here and kids like you guys are not great fits. And we were like, okay, so we move out our stuff. I throw all of mine in storage, which again, CD crates and ski jackets. And uh, Pete ended up getting a place, a sick apartment, but it was a single. And so all of a sudden I'm like, oh, well, I needed you. And now I'm trying to find a single. I couldn't find anything. So enter the house where I go to the guys. I'm like, look, there's that basement room that's absolutely horrifying. I go, can I just throw some stuff in there on a mattress and then run a cable wire down so I can watch games? I'm like, I'm not going to be home five nights anyway because I'm, I'm managing this bar. And they were like, totally. And the younger guys were cool about it. I hated it. Dude, I started making rounds with my buddies that were living in the city and be like, did you hear Rosillo's living in the basement right now? So this is a sixth year guy with no place to live. And I, I had like ba basement access. I wasn't hanging out. Um, I felt like a fucking loser. I can Wait, tell you that. Why did Pete do that to you, dude? That seems like a bummer. Well, you know, hard for so Pete on your back and got a got a got a studio to himself. Yeah, well, he had to do what he had to do. It was about survival at that point. And <laughs> you know, in the apartment that he got, even though looking at it now, I'd be like, oh my god, you wanted to live there at the time. It was a very desirable location and set up. I think the rent was like two hundred and fifty bucks a month. It was a studio, but he was good. He was very good at maximizing every square inch of a of an apartment or room and so i had nowhere to go i'm trying to find a single last minute and I, there's just nothing so i had to move into this basement room i think there was a fight one night and a bunch of guys came downstairs and were like hey there's a fight upstairs can you help and i was like oh. you know you're like sober and, you know but again i'm 23 and i feel like i'm 33 
And you're just like, all right. So I lasted, I don't know. I lasted like maybe six weeks or something like that until somebody else let me move into their place. And then somebody went abroad and I took that. So it all worked out. But the point is this, is that the guy before he stole our house was like, he's living here. He's like, great. That's another headcount. Charge him full room and board. And they were like, no, we're actually just trying to help the guy out. He doesn't have anywhere to live. He doesn't eat anything. He's never around. And I wasn't because I was working all the time. And now he's like, nope. And so they tacked it on. They just threw it on, man. They just threw it on. And the guy, like the national guy, again, they stole our house. So fuck that guy. But um, that's just what they did. And that's, you know, that's that's the dark side of the finances. So, well, I feel like this. And again, having not been in it, maybe I'm an idiot, but it gets back to the is this a pyramid scheme for friends situation? Like these guys are just looking for money. They're like sharks out there. Like when they see blood, they're like, all right, charge this guy 700 bucks. Like that's, that's a bummer to me. And what's the, what's the rule? Are you supposed to, when you, when you're done, when you graduate, are you just out? You can come back to parties, but you never have to pay. That's the rule. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's supposed to happen. So then you should just, that's the rule Then you don't have to pay. If you graduate, then you, then you kind of get, get skate by for free. Look, there's places that take it way more seriously than any experience that I ever had where you go back and maybe there's some sort of alumni thing that, that you do. You know, I remember, again, we had a big screen TV. It was before I'd even been there, but it was there. And somebody was like, yeah, you know, one class bought this and then whatever. I remember one time when I was was still like in normal time frame years, it was like fake Oktoberfest because UVM shut it all down because it was out of control. And they were just like, this is such a liability, how crazy that town used to be. And really, I think it was kind of like late 80s, early 90s before I'd even gotten there. And so they try to change it around and they made it homecoming, even though we have a football team. So I think it was like a homecoming <laughs> soccer game. But then they combined it with parents weekend because they thought like, all right, even though this is technically still Oktoberfest, it doesn't exist anymore. It'll be homecoming, but it's also parents weekend. So maybe these kids will just not be out of control because their parents are around. And that didn't work either. Um, and then I remember just like hanging out on the porch. And then some alums came by, you know, vests, finance, look great, you know, just like really got their shit together, late 20s. And they go, are you guys doing anything for us? And we're like, yeah, I don't know. There's, there's some stuff in the fridge if you want. They're like, you guys serious? Like you didn't, you didn't do anything? Again, and they just looked at us like we were the biggest losers ever because we put together nothing. We put zero, zero effort into anything for anybody coming back to visit. So you know, look, I'm not saying I understand all of it everywhere because geographically it is super, super intense in other pockets of the country compared to where I was. Um, but at least in this case, for this guy, the hang up, like, I'm glad you don't have that hang up because, you know, I felt like the biggest loser ever. And my friends were kind of like, dude, what are you doing? And I go, I'm not living here like I'm fired up to live here and going to meetings and stuff. Like I, I need a place to put my shit. I have, I have no place to live. So, uh, yeah. there you go. Okay, yeah. Any follow ups, Kyle? Um, well, I'd, I'd never been in a fraternity. Came close twice, but I yeah, just, we talked about that. It You're treasurer, like, sort of, right? Weren't you like, uh, yeah, yeah, treasurer for the. Uh, um, prospect group or whatever you want to call it yeah um but i just I, I think i would treat this like you know you're not getting my fucking 
uh, football jersey back senior year. You just don't have 57. I know that you could bother me about it. I know that the, you know, the head, the, the coach slash history teacher is going to see me in the hallways and ask me about it. And I'll tell him, I don't know. I'll look, you know, my mom's <laughs> supposed to watch it. I'm not sure. And I'm just going to keep doing that until I graduate. And then it doesn't matter. I'll wear it to the games when my little brother plays. And then, hey, remember that jersey? It's right. It's like, it is what it is. You, you past the time. You've made it out. Congrats. And that's money that you don't know. Like, yeah, yeah I mean, you, get my 57 jersey back. Sorry. I can't imagine debt collectors calling you back in the day, you know, because it's you got to build mm. up that thick skin. We just <laughs> go like, hey, I know I know you're calling. I know I know you're after something, but I'm you I'm numb to, to this shit. Yeah. You know, they get really aggressive. They can be super nasty about it. They just they they prey on your weakness. I had a guy text me about a real estate thing Christmas morning. Christmas morning, the guy cold texting me being like, hey, is that the, and I just went, fuck off. It's Christmas. That was my response. Nice. Uh, this, this title obviously jumped right out. So we had to do it. Living on Martha's Vineyard. Okay. Name is, uh, we'll just say, I guess he's telling us to use his first name. Kevin, 27 from Ohio, 6'2", 200 pounds, played D3 lacrosse. Sick. Uh, strange career, to say the least. In college, I was a fishing charter captain on Nantucket. Oh, this guy really likes the islands. Uh, after I graduated from a little art school, I went to San Francisco and ran a successful fly shop. All right, fly fishing. I knew it'd be a temporary move because of my career and how expensive the Bay Area is. So I knew I was I knew leaving was a ticking time bomb. All right, regardless, I met many intelligent people, started doing video, social media seriously. Uh, because of some tech roommates, it was pretty good at helping the company get a lot of new customers. Once the pandemic hit and everything shut down, I had a short stint as a yacht broker. Strange world. Yes, it is. Uh, and eventually my fiance and I moved to South Carolina. She has a remote job and I will always try to make my fishing career work. Charleston's much, oh, Charleston, South Carolina, much cheaper than these super cities. So I thought it'd be an intelligent move. Long story short, my fiance hated the South and wanted to come back to her roots in the Northeast. Fairfield County, shout out. Um, being from Cleveland and living in two of the most expensive places in the country, um, I was highly wary of moving to somewhere extremely expensive. So uh, the parents made a deal with us. We can move into their Martha's Vineyard home um, and they purchased a new boat for me. Jeez, dude. Sick parents. Yeah. They're not, even, <laughs> they're not even his. Did they give you a million dollars too? Yeah. Get you started? <laughs> And the dad said it was cool if I have an open relationship. <laughs> um, so, all right. Uh, they purchased the new boat, 32-foot regulator. All right. Um, because he said his 17-foot skiff can't handle waste All right. Uh, it's always been my fiance's dream to live on the island year-round. Oh, is it? Has she ever done it before? <laughs> the number of people that I've met that have told me that it is their dream to live on Martha's Vineyard year-round versus the number of people who are like, I'm psyched I did this. Um, so that's kind of my first concern, but we'll keep reading the email. So I'll do anything to make the fishing part work. Uh, been working on my career since I was 18. He started a uh, fishing club in college. <laughs> a regular Rushmore over here. I know from past experiences in your podcast that making friends in the Northeast is challenging to say the least. Uh, do you have any advice for me since I know you grew up there? I'm thinking about trying to help coach the high school hockey team as a volunteer to get involved in the community. Sure, you can drop my name. I don't know who any of the coaches are for the hockey team. I can't, can't even ice skate. Um, but feel free. I don't I don't know anyone there, so I can't really uh, on the hockey side of things. With my new fishing charter, people will probably not like me since all they see is a spoiled brat from Cleveland with a $200,000 boat. 
I'd already been talked shit to a couple times at the talk, but I ignore it because I'm not an idiot. I know what it looks like. All right, some good self-awareness. Sorry for the long email. Um, I love the ocean. I love Martha's Vineyard. I'm a little worried about making lifelong friends on the island. I love the show. And uh, go Bruins. Okay. All right. Um, I don't know. I think you're actually doing all right here. Um, if your biggest hangup is meeting new friends, you're still in your 20s. Um, look, the Northeast part of this is not the challenge. This isn't like moving to Boston going, Hey, everybody's not super friendly from the beginning. Cause we, you know, and I've told you numerous times when you're from the Boston area, you, everybody, I think Philly has this too. Maybe New York just doesn't care enough, but everybody kind of starts at like zero and has to work their way up to a 50 on the scale of a thousand on the likability thing. Um, I'm just telling you. You know, the vineyard is gorgeous. I appreciate it more now that I'm older, but I also appreciate the fact that I don't have to live there. I mean, there's a, it's a weird feeling when it's February and you want to do something. And there's no highway. Um, now, it is very different year round now compared to uh, when I lived there. Uh, when I lived there, like after seven o'clock in, in the mid of winter, if, if you didn't have, you know, something to eat, not, you know, again, you just grocery shop. It's not like you're walking around homeless. But um you know, you didn't really have any options. You go to Cumberland Farms, grab chips and salsa, like that kind of stuff. Like, it's just weird. It's just weird. Like, we used to get the movies way later than everybody else, you know, months after, and it'd be one, it would run for a week, and then it would be done. And so that was like a big deal when the new movie that was super old would make it to the island on a Friday, and that was like an actual thing to do. But again, you're not going to be partying with high school kids, so uh, I'm giving my high school experience on this. It is more year-round-ish, the, the vibe uh especially this last time that I was just there um, seeing family, it's, it is more year round. I think the pandemic has a lot to do with that on top of everything else. So I don't know how sustainable that is, but if you're moving out to Katama and you get a $200,000 boat, then you're going to figure out a way to make this work. So you have the major parts of this ticked off. First of all, all right. Um, I, I just wonder if you're both really super built, even though it is better year round, built for it uh, the way so many people told me they were built for it. And then they hated it because it's it's very challenging. Um, I don't I, I don't know. Making friends on it. You got a boat. So you're going to make friends. Right. And if you're really good. Somebody at fishing, wants to be your friend. Yeah. yeah somebody, you're going to have some people that want to be your friend. So you're probably going to have to hit up the Ritz, which isn't as fancy as it sounds. Um you know, the places that I used to bartend are closed now anyway, you know, maybe just make, make your way down to the wharf pub in Egertown. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's not for everybody, but some of it's going to be getting out there and being social and meeting people. And, and it's going to be up to you. It's going to be up to you to make it happen. Um, but I would not have a hang up about the boat thing. All right. I mean, look, you're not the only guy there with money walking around. Um, and most people aren't going to give a shit. Like I remember my father moved our family there the first time. And here he is just a humble tradesman. And he put up his flyer about, you know, decks, patios, additions, renovations, blah, 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 whatever. And it was this like letterhead. Then he started posting, you know, the general store, the gas station, the grocery store. He just started going around canvassing, trying to get his business. I mean, it was pretty ballsy, to be honest. He had no contacts, just wanted to live there. It was a dream of his. Um, and he, he put this thing all over town. And so then we went back to like the general store the next day and some local wrote full of shit. <laughs> and it was all it was, was him listing the services that he provided. And some guy writes full of shit. Like that was so egregious to say that he could handle renovations, additions, 
patios. I mean, it, I don't think this wasn't like it was making it up. And then my father like somehow changed it. I'll never forget. And it said, instead of full of shit, he crossed off full and was like, he's good. No shit. Then <laughs> <laughs> he left it up. Nice. So I, I don't know why. Maybe he was running low on, um, Flyers. letterhead yeah i don't, I don't I know why when just put up another one but he got a kick out of it. he thought that was really funny that he did it and you know eventually it worked but he wasn't a guy that was social it wasn't like he was going out or doing anything like that so um i don't i don't have a ton of advice for you other than prepare yourself for the winter part of this and you're not going to make any friends just hanging out with your fiance the entire time um I, i'm not acting like you know this isn't going to be the shining because it's a far more active than it was when I was, you know, I was only there 15, 16, 17. And then some summers when I would go back and then I spent two winters there, which I would rather have not done, but I didn't have any choice. Um, but yeah, I don't know, Kyle. Um, yeah. I mean, I imagine there's multiple boat clubs again, winter is different, but, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, this is wherever you go that you're going to have to find new friends and like, if you're thinking about like, oh, they're going to think I'm a fraud. Well, maybe, maybe you seem like a fraud if that's all you're thinking about. That's all. Just fucking be friends. You got a boat and then go to the boat. There's like clubs for people that are, are your, your style, right? Which is like boats or rich in-laws or something. Maybe there's just a regular club you can go to. I don't know. Rich in-law club. You think that exists? I don't know. <laughs> uh, that's just a country club, isn't it? Um, maybe he but... can start one like his fishing club. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, if if he likes hockey, I, there's going to be a men's league skate yeah. that goes on or something like that. Those guys. Is there a Bruins bar break. anywhere? I mean, you know, a Bruins, Bruins bar. Fan. I don't know. No sports I mean, bar at all. Just show up at a Bruins jersey. I'm sure, I'm sure there's people, a sports bar. There'll be yeah. other Bruins fans there. You know, talk to hockey. You'll make you meet a couple guys. Maybe you uh, you know you get a number or two. Be all right. Yeah, the lookout. You go up there, watch some games out by the OB ferry. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just this poor guy's gonna be walking around dropping my name and he'd be like, that fucking guy's been here 20 years. <laughs> that guy's full of shit. <laughs> guy's not even a native. Martha's Vineyard, 728 reviews on Google, 4.5 stars. Nice. Who reviews so, an island? I don't know. It literally says it's an island. It says like Martha's Vineyard Island. <laughs> 4.4.5 stars. It is I, I just cannot emphasize this enough. It is not for everyone. All right. Like the fact that the boat. Like you'll kind of drive around and it's gorgeous. I mean, seriously, every town it's, it's incredible. You know, it took me a little while. It took me to be a little more settled in my own head and, and that kind of stuff. And the fact that I could leave, but when I would come back and you pull in on the boat, at Haven, and you're just like, this place is insane. Like Nantucket's more fun, but Martha's Vineyard from a, a picturesque standpoint, I think has it all over. Nantucket. Is it losing any land? Like, is that a concern for like those islands or like, is the water rising or anything? Um, I, you know, I haven't checked the charts lately. Mm -hmm. Um, no, mostly if you look at the way the currents work, it, it's drags one part of the beach and builds up towards another end on the South part of the Island. So, um, I don't know. I don't know. Like Chappaquiddick's the whole nother story. So I imagine some of the four wheel paths are different now, but again, I'm, I'm kind of talking to my ass a little bit cause I don't know. Um, so I'm going to stop, but <laughs> fair. Yeah. But it was, um, those winners, man. Those winters were, I took a semester off for construction there. That was, that was, it was necessary, but it was, well, actually it wasn't necessary. It was a terrible decision. So, Saruti. What's the etiquette on throwing like a mixer, like drinking party on a fishing boat? Is that, can you do that? Or are these people going to judge you because it's not like a nice yacht or something? I don't know. Or at least just like a normal boat. 
No, you no, you can do that. I mean, the thing is, is that I, you know, you can. Some of the fishing boats are basically party boats, you know, like oh hey, here are your here are your rods, and here's you know, seventy white claws, and you're like oh we didn't catch anything, you know, oh had a terrible time, you know. So I don't I don't really know if this this guy sounds like he's pretty hardcore in the fishing thing. I think we've covered this. I think we've we've talked about this a lot. So I don't have a ton more to add. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. And we will have a full episode on Wednesday. And please subscribe. Thanks to Kyle and Steve. Find us on the podcast or in your Spotify. <laughs>